Jimmy here. Welcome to a special 30th episode edition of Shoulders of Giant. Just a quick note before the recording starts in earnest. A couple of moments where my laughing at uh, Sheppy's quips makes things a wee bit echoey. Um, so look, apologies for that. It only happens on a few occasions, but one of those things, we're covering uh, an 80s classic that's hilarious here. So hopefully you get some giggles too. We pick up the pod just after Sheppy has complimented me on my jumper. I hope you enjoy. not a christmas jumper no. it's a it's a james bond at home jumper holy shit yeah that's the coolest item of clothing i think i own sheppy from that yeah, no, that's fair play i mean not connery probably not more maybe lazenby definitely <laughs> craig possibly i don't know what dalton's bond would wear at home when he's just by himself in his civvies probably just a nice crisp shirt you know i don't Whereas think dalton's bond ever's been home Sheppy. i don't think he's, <laughs> no, he's, no home. Home. he's, he's like Del Griffith. oh my god yeah there you go uh yes yes pure he hasn't been home in years he, every time he goes to visit his wife's grave, he gets scooped up in an evil helicopter. So he stopped going. Couldn't be bothered. Wasn't worth it. So, so there you go. Um, I walked into a tree today, Jimmy, which is unfortunate. Um, so not a tree as such, not the trunk or the like, a, a branch. You know, and it wasn't like it got me out of nowhere. I was like scrambling through Jack T. Colton foliage. I was in a park, Jimmy. I was in a park. And it was just a tree in the middle of the park, and I was next to the tree. And I turned around and walked straight into a branch, and I cut my little face. So, oh, so wow. there you go. Yeah, yeah. I, I could blame. I don't know. Oh, what, what could you play life? Yeah, I would play life. I don't God. know what um, the ratio of stupidity to sympathy is, and how they balance each other out, and like how something really awful could happen to you. I think I'm so pathetic in most, if not all, things, that I instantly should secure the possibility of the sympathy vote, just because I'm so obviously inept in all things, just stumbling around a park, walking into trees. Yeah, um, in the middle of this broad, sunny daylight, beautiful day, um, just like what? So um, hopefully I get a little bit of sympathy just from the you know, oh dear, bless. <laughs> bless sympathy, yeah. Yeah. The t-shirt <laughs> tucked into the jeans boat. So, uh, but I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that's asking a lot of people. So <laughs> it depends if they've just watched Scrooged, then I should be sorted. But otherwise, no, I think I'm in a lot of trouble. And I'm going to be left for dead. The miracle it hasn't already happened. That's when peak sympathy is is in the human spirit post Scrooge when people want to give each other a helping hand. Put a little a love in their heart. At least, oh, by yeah. the way, here. 
Listen, man. I'm very I'm gonna, excited. I'm going to go straight in for the welcome. Welcome yes. one and all to Shoulders of Giants because I've got to be honest with you, we don't know what the runtime is going to be. This is the great unknown, but it's it's got a very fair chance of being pretty epic. This one, Sheppy, like so. Um, let me say I'm Jimmy for the record and for the voice. Oh, good one, good shout. Yeah. Yes, lovely. Uh, I'm Sheppy. We'll see. I mean, look, it's not going to be the Hulk. It's not probably. It's not going to be. Uh, Star Wars, and it, and if it's not going to be Star Wars, it certainly won't be Three Men and a Baby, which was longer than the Star Wars one. So, I think we're okay by our own standards. I think we're going to be all right. I think everything's going to be fine. Uh, I have just spilled really hot tea on my upper leg, so I I am going through that. But that in itself is another you know incentive to keep things as brief as possible before I pass out from the pain. But yes, Jimmy, technically, of course, this, hello, this is Shoulders of Giants. I don't know if we even said that. We did do this it, is, bro. Oh, I good. like that you got to say it on an anniversary one, so that's nice. That's as well. it. It's the 30th, Jimbo. The 30th pod. Very nice. Um, and it's very nice the choice that you chose for this pod is a good one. Did you choose it? Shall we just say, people know, of course, people, it's vacation. It's obviously vacation. So did you choose vacation knowing it was the 30th and knowing that it was extra special significance? And that's why, or is it a happy coincidence? Uh, I, I think it, it, it was, um, it was a good one to choose. It, it, the, the fact it was coming, if you know what I mean. It was, it was on it was, the menu. It, yeah, it was definitely. It was in the, the clip, maybe <laughs> yeah. not in the chamber, but it was elevated <laughs> to the chamber because it was the 30th. Don't have put uh, words in your mouth. Absolutely. Uh, the metaphor is perfect. I will say just a quick bit of context on that. Like that the, the, I thought I was going to go in a different direction with it because one of, you know, National, we'll get into all the history of it, et cetera, et cetera, in a minute. But, you know, it was remade with um, Ed Helms as yeah. uh, Rusty. Yes. Uh, well, not remade, but kind of reimagined or rebooted. You can say reboot, and you can say sequel in the same way Jurassic World is a sequel. Um, yeah. It's. You know, I haven't seen it. I've been told to see it. I will see it. I definitely wasn't going to watch it knowing we were going to do this pod. It's the opposite of Cat from Outer Space, Flight of the Navigator, eight episodes of The Hulk, what have you. So I didn't. Now, last night, and I'll get to this, but I'm just going to say now, I did watch European Vacation. And I'm glad I did, because it did. I had finished writing my thing, and it didn't change a thing. But and I've seen European Vacation a billion times, and so not that long ago anyway. But it did make me just want to put one element in, just one tiny thing, just not even a joke or a scene or anything. Um, I'll just say it's just a shot of the car, whatever car it is, driving with whatever landscape is in the back, because he's been through all across America, and now you've got here in like the middle of Germany and you've just had it in London and Paris. So it's just that, just like an iconic shot of it driving through whatever countryside or whatever city or whatever locale, just a and shot. It may be like witty conversation, you know, over the top from inside the car, but, you know, not necessarily. It could just yeah. be, you know. So that's one thing which I'm glad I watched you again, but I haven't seen the reboot slash sequel slash remake with Ed Helms as Rusty. And I never wanted to, because there have been many Rusties, um, and Anthony and Michael Hall will always be the Rusty. But more than that, I've never liked any of the other Rusties. 
and I know Ed Helms, and I like Ed Helms, but I know exactly what he's going to be up to. And I don't want to see that version of Rusty. And that's been my main thing. Knowing that um, Clark and Ellen are in it, and Chase and D'Angelo are back as themselves and everything, knowing that, and I still haven't watched it, but I will, Jimmy. And I should have done it, you know, I didn't want to watch it whilst I was writing the thing, and now I finished, but now we're recording. So, you know, I will watch it, but I'll have to tell you my thoughts on it another time. You've yeah. seen it, yeah. I know, right? I, I have, and look, I think there's at least sort of three decent laughs in it as well. You know, it's, it's Chevy from memory, because it was a few years back I watched it, and I won't ever watch it again, but um, mm-hmm. Chevy is sort of, it's a bit awkward. He oh, is sort really? of Clark, but he, it's like when a performance is, they pull the one thread of the character that's either your least favourite or not quite the way you interpreted it back in yeah. the day. Like, he's very clumsy in it. Yeah. Chevy, which is right. a, it's a shame. But the, yeah. the, the central thing for me was, again, I really like Ed Helms and having watched um, The American Office now since as well, really like his performance in that. And I just yeah. I like him. He's, he's got chops. But like you say, He's not big quite the energy out of eating big tea. <laughs> uh, but I always wanted to see Sudeikis. I always thought Sudeikis was the natural success of the chase and even more yeah. likable. And I wanted to basically be incredible. I was thought when it came to this particular pitch, I was going to be very prescriptive. And I was going to tell you, I want a sequel now in the noughties with Chevy as Grand Pops Griswold, Griswold or whatever, and then um, and Sudeikis specifically cast as Rusty Griswold, and then you could do whatever yeah. else you want. And then I watched With the Millers just before we got to this 30th episode, and I was thinking, you know, you know what? With the Millers with a couple of tweaks could be a really interesting Rusty, Rusty Griswold adventure, actually. Yeah. And um, so what's the point in rehashing that? So let's just go right back to the original source. And Well, that's fair. Yeah, so um, in terms of Sudeikis and him being the new chase, yeah, same as like 10 years ago, even around the time of We're the Millers, and it could have conceivably happened, they were there was mooted, and I don't know how serious and I mooted was, but Sudeikis is Fletch, and that would be amazing. And there are so many books to choose from, so you don't have to redo that one and just do you know and have his version. Oh my god. And, and back in the day, by the way, just as a side note, around 2000, when I was, I loved Mall Rats, and I still love Mall Rats, but I loved Mall Rats so much, and I wanted Jason Lee to play Fletch, um, and I knew that it might happen, and Kevin Smith was looking at maybe doing a Fletch film, and that would make sense, and I was just like, oh, oh, God, sweet elixir, and it never happened, and I know now that Kevin Smith's idea, I wouldn't have liked it anyway, but just to have had a Fletch film, um, yeah, that was being a fan of the books and, of course, of the original Chevy. Yeah. So Sudeikis was in that. We're the Millers. Tweak it and have it as a, a Rusty Griswold story. That would be great. I would. I could invest. You know, I've seen We're the Millers once a long time ago, but you could have Rusty and he's a pot dealer. And it's just, you know, I can't. You don't Absolutely. have to make that. Yeah. I, I agree. It really works. And actually that. Of course, you would think that it'd be really innocuous to be a geeky family to do that sort of yeah. thing, you know, and like kind of really. And he's rebelled nice. against his dad, uh, but now having to do this means that he has to sort of get back in touch with that side of him to his estranged father, Clark, 
and he does it. And at the end of the film, he drives home and he sees and we have a cameo from Chevy. And there's your We're the Millers. So that that would be a We're the Vacation Millers. Millers on vacation. Um, yeah, Millers vacation. So, yeah. <laughs> You know, that works. So there you go. That was Shoulders of Giants. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, see ya. Um, I've, also, I've tried to be, because, um, I mean, you know, cards on the table, Sheppy, the reason to choose it for 30 is that, you know, th this is a big deal for both of us, this movie. I mean, it's, I, it still remains in my top 10, probably of all time, National Lampoon's yeah. Vacation. It's right Not up just there. comedy, but film. Yeah. I think it, it's better than Groundhog Day. Even though Groundhog Day is great as well, you know, right. but in the rain well, of course, we're talking me, gold standard five out of five comedies and films in their own rights, but comedy specifically. There are so many things. I mean, you could say Ghostbusters, and it is a comedy, but it is also, it's like Shaun of the Dead. It is a comedy. It is also exactly 50%, you know, in, that, you know, in the case, it was like horror adventure in Ghostbusters' case. So it's like, uh, but in terms of pure, pure comedy, I love, love, love trading places. Uh, I have a thing it's for cinematic, so I like John Landis cinematic comedies. Um, I love uh, Tropic Thunder, um, Three Amigos, Spies Like Us, but Vacation is like a triple whammy because it is a perfect film, and it's John Hughes, and it's Howard Reynolds, and it's Chase, and it's at his peak Chase Cheviness, which lasts, it's a bit like Arnie, the golden era of Chase was like in the sort of beginning of the 80s through to the sort of 88, I'm going to say, started to cool off pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, in that peak, it was pretty great. And Vacation was, I'm going to say, 83. Does that sound right to you? That's what I should have looked at that, Sheps. But yeah, it'll be on the website. <laughs> but yeah. It was 83. But yeah. maybe, oh God, what a year. Vacation. Um, and Octopus, fucking hell. So anyway, um, <laughs> you get onto that. Vacation is a great film. It's got all these different elements that separately I really like, and I know you do too, you know, Ramis, um, Course, Hughes, Chase, and then you've got the fact that it's a great film, then you've got our personal nostalgia issue with it, of having watched it pretty early, and the fact, of course, that, of course, yes, we watched it together, so we've had this, so that's why it's such a big film for us personally, and it hasn't ever gone away with us. It has always been this thing. And in this very podcast, I've referenced it a bunch of times, just not on purpose, but of course, it's just... And the idea of Chase and the idea that... What he's very good at playing to different angles from, but he's always best in this sort of thing, the version that he plays to the hilt of Clark W. Griswold, especially in the first one, is it's, it's that dad who... And that sort of dad person who we know that who's not even necessarily our dad, but just a the, the dad, the concept of that sort of dad. And and then our personal liking of humor where people think they're cool and they're not. And I'm gonna cite equally to Clark Griswold, uh, John Arbuckle, as being, especially from the actual comic strips, more even than the, the actual animation. Um, He's he is that exact type, and he thinks he's cool, and he's not. He sleeps with his feet sticking out of the tent, um, and that type of character, who later has become equaled, you know, um, the the mantle has been passed to Phil Dunphy, and it's exactly that, and that was played brilliantly, and it's its own thing, but it is taken absolutely from that 
concept that well um, and Chase for all of his Chase's powers directed through that exact prism. Absolutely astonishing. Just cool enough, just intelligent and lucky and competent enough to get by pretty much anything by the skin of his teeth and this blind momentum which is built up behind him just through his constant idiocy and he just shoots through these insane situations and survives because he's Clark Griswold and he's brilliant mm. and he's also selfish and blind um, and and really getting misreading situations like on a sociopathic level not even a Larry yeah. David sort of detachment he, he's so in tune it's just he's way off with everything most of the time with his relationship to his kids to his wife um, but and of course, it, you know, it, the heart is right there because the love is there. He loves them so much and they love him so much, but they all hate, but not in a sort of a Seinfeld way. They're just like bickering and everything, but they've got this unspoken, you know, thing that they are actually a pretty tight family unit. They're a good team. And on, on some base level, there's that acknowledgement. They're never, there's never the scene where, you know, go, okay, dad, it's over, you know? Um, because yeah. uh, you know, it's this and by the way, who would care? The closest they come to that is Clark and Ellen, and that you know, but that's fair enough. They're a married couple, um, so you know, one storming off is is fair enough because you know, well, no matter know, fair what, enough, Chef, he's just ordering some some dinner for the kids from the waitress <laughs> in the pool. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, coming back to our personal relationship with vacation, then, um, is there anything you wanted to add to that massive diatribe? I mean, I think you've just summarised it beautifully. I think you summarised the chase uh, wonderfulness in it beautifully there, Shepka. I wouldn't, I, I don't have anything to add to that. And I didn't make any notes purposely because I just thought I could be here all day, you know, because I, I, I love this movie. It's it's given me friendships. Like, I can give you that, like, just being able to requote it and stuff. Give you, I mean, of course, ours, but, you know, but over and above that, yeah, like, sure. you know, just, and I think the, um, I, 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 I guess uh, there were kind of two, there's one, actually just really just one moment I wanted to specifically reference in the movie, which is just, and it's my kind of, it's one of my earliest uh, things around, you know, a lovely little moment in a comedy that you maybe didn't necessarily notice the first time, but then second viewing, it pops. And then, you know, it was for you and me and then really became a thing, you know? So it sort of comes out of the movie and becomes transcendent. And then of course, there's a quote that you just have forever, you know, but but also as a moment, it almost got lost in the full experience that first viewing. And of course it's the tray on the side of the uh, of the, <laughs> of the car, which, you know, for, for listeners that haven't seen National Lampoon's Vacation in a while, but you know, essentially they've, they've pulled in for a drive-through Waitress comes out with a tray absolutely loaded with junk food, and chaos, and burgers and chips. Well, it's not just junk food, like shitty junk food. It looks amazing. And it's got like these steins or something, or maybe it's like real kind of, you know, ceramic milkshake things. You know, there's something, it's classy. It's like a wimpy on the heat. So it's not just, you know, Greasy Joe. That, and they yeah. come over and, I, and she's carrying the tray. And and it's the old kids, really, that makes the Well, well, so he goes, okay, I'll take it. He, he goes to take the tray. He takes it off her because he's like, whoa, 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 new car, new car. Thank you, thank you. No, no, I'll take it from here. So she goes, okay, so she fucks off. 
and then he's going to lift it up and hang it on the, you know, but the window is halfway up on the car, and he's looking at it, and he's bringing it in, and yes, yes, uh, what's the line, Jimmy, that he says? <laughs> I could, I just really went off on one, and I want you to be the one to say the line. No, no, no. Well, look, I'm, okay. is, it, well, is it says, the window that snaps it, or, because he, but no, I, I've never no, thought about I think this he just before. drops it. I think he drops it, yeah. Because, the window's too high up and it's got <laughs> these sort of legs. He's meant to have the window all the way down so then he can hang it on the, on the side of the door. Now, maybe that the idea is that he goes to hang it on the side of the window and it's way too heavy and, and that's what does it. Um, the way I always took it is that he just drops it, <laughs> you know? He forgets the window's even there. He doesn't know what's going on. Yeah. He's holding up too high and is at an awkward angle. <laughs> And he just drops it and it shatters the window. But it might be that he's just hanging it on, on the window and he's miscalculated. You know, he has to wind down the window. Um, but either way, yes, he brings it in and he says, he's looking at this gorgeous looking junk food. And he says, oh, kids, oh, kids. Like, oh, my God, you're in for a trick. And then it goes and it falls on the ground immediately. You know, just like, boink, it's all on the ground. It's all ruined. And because it was ceramic, all the shit's gone everywhere. And, you know, you couldn't salvage your thing. And then there's that half a beat. And then he's like, waitress. <laughs> and when you started telling that, and before I totally interrupted it, it um, I was really fighting not to just burst out laughing. Just you describing the bit like they pull up to the, to the drive-thru and already... I'm like swallowing my tongue because it's just infused in us as this really funny thing. Now, sometime later, you and I... With my not that far <laughs> along, not that long after, Sheffy. I think it might so, have even been the next day. <laughs> so, what? <laughs> okay. It's not the next day. It's like a year later uh, after the first time we saw vacation and we're going on holiday with my family and we're at the airport and what happened to me well this is it so i you your uh, your lovely stepdad johnny bought the family a massive mackey d's and uh, uh i think it was burger king was it burger king oh. at an airport i bet it was burger king yeah fair enough and um, and so we had a fully loaded tray for me you your mum, and johnny and uh, I had to. I was charged with carrying it back to the table. How old were we? Like 14, 13? I think it must have been about then. Why would I volunteer that 14. sort of thing? God knows. I'll take it from here, Johnny. You <laughs> did. A pure clock. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You, you trail. I got it from here, Johnny. Thanks, thanks for your help. And, uh, and young Sheppy couldn't resist a little, oh, kids. <laughs> and so the whole thing's shaking walking... like there's a T-Rex at the airport. Like... <laughs> So you take the tray and it's loaded with all the food and you're walking to the table and I can just, if we filmed it in the story of Jimbo's life, it cuts to your POV and it's like underwater breathing, like, and you're then cut to you and you're walking in your feet and maybe your shoelace is coming a bit undone and you're holding it and you're getting closer to the table as your point of view again and the table's slightly closer and I'm there looking and Mummy and Johnny are there and they're looking and you're getting closer it's the place with your knuckle going white and you're holding it and it starts to vibrate then it starts to Jurassic Park a bit and you're getting closer and there's some of the uh, loose chip falls off and just lands on the edge of the tray your eye goes down a bit of Mission Impossible sweat comes off lands on your glasses you're getting closer and then I help you out by saying, oh, kids, oh, kids, just as you're within meters of the table. And fair play to you in this, in the version, in the, you know, maybe you drop it, but in, in reality, 
you don't drop it you make it you, you are absolutely beside yourself you put it down the, then just as you put it down and you're like and then the one chip on the edge will go onto the table but that's it and then you're like cheers jimmy you're the son i never had and the stepson i wish i had and i'm like cheers johnny i'm right here and then we ate a delicious piece of burgundy so good for you I tell you, I am so excited about today on the basis of that, Sheppy. That was a masterclass, Matt. Can I just say as well, the um, you've given me something that I didn't know I loved as much as I do just there. That moment of pure tension in an 80s movie or whatever, or, you know, anyway, in any movie where they think to do the edit of the expectant faces that you just put in there of the three protagonists that are delivering the trace. And it's the friend's parents, so there's the extra responsibility yeah. of it's not my parents, you know. And you <laughs> and totally, as a, as a director, you give them each a different note of like expectation, <laughs> care, concern, like, you know, with three different <laughs> slide. Like, indifference um hopeful expectation and then of course me where well, i'm just absolutely loving it you're the drug candy <laughs> devil in place <laughs> just looking not looking mischievous um like as you're approaching but just looking just knowing you know i know i know you know i know and then you're there and i've been sitting on it and then it's like oh kids oh kids knowing that's my master move and waiting until you're so close which is the danger ultimate danger zone anyway when you know when you're within reach but not quite that's the moment yeah yeah so amazing job to me let me just say sheppy unless you want like because honestly that's one drop in the ocean gag which even has the energy and frisson of them almost they're on location they have a, a coffee and it feels like chase or ramis goes i've got an idea let's shoot this with the waitress or that you know it's got that edge to it and but there are like a hundred moments in vacation the gag rate's extraordinary there's yeah, a bazillion a scenes to reference calendar. it's just insane and i i don't want to unless you do i don't want to start down that road because i'll be annoyed that i didn't mention your favorite road. scene or like yeah exactly like well okay so we watched vacation together when we were about 11 and we loved it uh things came from that experience the drunks who left their house to find their house i'm not going to explain that to the listeners but that's something that happened because we watched vacation and it's like okay we're 11 and we watched it many times and we watched european vacation and and everything and and it also yes it had it, there were lots of moments of people being a being cool mood, like chatting up the people in the bar and so on, which was was a dad doing it, not from our point of view, I'm speaking for myself, but really it wasn't, oh, that's what happened when I chat up a girl in the bar, because I was 11. It was, that's a dad thing, and that gave it the extra dad prism. I've never seen it through Clark's eyes necessarily. He's always that kind of, I guess that's why I like Rusty, specifically Anthony Michael Hall's Rusty, not because I'm anything like him, but just because he's that in for me um, yeah. and it's yeah. he's, he's the avatar um so that's nice so yes we could talk about vacation the original forever but yes i'll say that's brilliant it's brilliant um yes and there are too many amazing moments was there anything specific about vacation other than anything we've said just before we, we move on no i'm happy to move on sheppy because i'm very i i, I basically want to get over my pitch to get to your pitch but I just well, um, but yes yeah, so I'm really just I'm happy to go for it let um, me say this 
We've talked about vacation. I mentioned European vacation very quickly, but before we get to any pictures, I want to say this. I like European vacation very, very much. It's a very strong three. Not perfect. In fact, the third act has always been rubbish. Even when we were kids, we knew the third act was rubbish. But the first two thirds of that film are fucking gold. Not in the same quality. You know what it is? It's the Die Hard 2 of comedy sequels. It's good. It's not in the same realm as the original, but it's good, damn it. It's got enough of the same beats and it's got its own feel. Um, it's good. I like it very much. And like actually Die Hard with a Vengeance, the third act is shit. But in terms of overall quality, Pig in the Pope makes me laugh so much. I like it when people's faces just sort of pop out of things, like with the pig suit and it's just their stupid faces. Um, all of that, John Astin, totally kissing, getting off inappropriately with Audrey, which I always forget about and it always makes me laugh, and they do it again. And then of course, Chevy's reaction when he comes over after just heavily getting off with his presumably 15 year old daughter, uh, and then just Chevy's face where he doesn't know how to handle it. <laughs> it's so funny. Oh my God, it's pure. And then all of it, and then going and of course, watching it now. So I watched it with Marta last night and we watched it before, like a few years ago, and since the first viewing, we've watched Karate Kid and Cobra Kai, so there's fucking Lawrence, there's Johnny Lawrence right there, Willie Zabby, right there, pure 85, so right in between Karate Kid and Karate Kid 2. That was amazing, and by the way, side note, when we watched it, when we were 11, 12, European vacation, you would say, that's Johnny from Karate Kid, I'd be like, oh yeah, that's cool. So there you go, kudos. Um, that's amazing. Um, all of it, going there, the, uh, oh yeah, and of course, we've also, since we first saw it, we saw Cobra Kai and everything, we also saw Cracker, so then Fitz Coltrane turns up in the bathroom with Ellen, that's amazing, so Marta seeing it too, hey look, it's Fitz, and she's like, oh my god, from 1985, and then in the same scene, while well, she's larking around with Coltrane, and Griswold gets into bed with Maureen Lippmann, and she's a character who we quote all the time um, in this household, because she was in an episode of David Tennant, Doctor Who, and she's a weird baddie thing, and she goes, hungry. So all the time, it's like, hey, should we eat something? Hungry. So we're always quoting Morgan Newman. So then he gets in bed with her, and I'm like, that's hungry, lady. And he's like, oh my God. So that was amazing. So it's great for that. And there's, a, there's loads of good stuff. The English get off really lightly. You know, you have the upper class twit, but everyone's super friendly, or you have the slobs, like the horrible, you know, Muppet Motel that uh, Mel Smith runs. But that's amazing. That place needs its own Shoulders of Giants spin-off sitcom because it's Mel <laughs> Smith and his mum. And you've got Robbie Coltrane, who's a permanent resident. You've got Maureen Littman, who's an infomaniac who's upstairs with her shaved legs. That thing writes itself. So it's a great film. And I, I really wanted to give it kudos. It's, um, it probably doesn't quite escape at the three-star zone. But there's enough in there which is really good. It's almost a really solid four star, um, but it's not quite. But I might just have to give it four star, even though it really goes off the rails. Once the robbery and Ellen gets kidnapped, and that, and none of it makes a lick of sense. By the way, put the guy in the in the boot of the car, but then they want to get the guy out. Doesn't make sense. Rubbish. Um, but everything leading up to that, right up until the dancing in Germany. Um, and then Clark getting into a fight and he's wearing the lederhosen and all of that. That's amazing. Um, so, yes, 
Yes, I like it. Oh, and talking about the family unit working together, I don't like this Rusty and Audrey, frankly, but there's a really good bit where Rusty finally gets with this girl and he's talking and, and she says, uh, oh, I've talked so much about myself. What about your family? And I know that they say that as a setup to explain why Rusty hasn't said anything yet, but actually within the context of the film, Rusty's a really good date. He's been like listening to her and letting her talk. So anyway, then he's like, oh, my family, oh, they're okay, I guess, a little boring. And then they smash in with the car and he goes, oh my God, that's bad. And they all get in. And it's kind of like uh, Doc Emmett turning up and Jennifer being like, what the fuck? And mother being like, get in. Uh, it's like, what the fuck? And they all get in the car together, all of them, including this girl no one's ever met. And Rusty's like, what's going on? Like instantly in, invested in the adventure. And he's like, oh, and Audrey's like, oh, nothing much. Mom's just been kidnapped. And then Clark hits the gas and they go off. That's amazing, even though it's in a section of the film I don't like. And I like the, even though it's total chance, really, but I'm choosing to read out of it this really tight family unit who are always having these fucking adventures. And Rusty isn't like, what's going on? What are you doing? She's just like, what's going on? What's the plan? It's like the A-team. So um, that's a shout out. So I like European Vacation very, very much. That's awesome, Sheppy. And I, I agree with you completely. And I love that little Rusty as a date observation. That's stunning. Right. I think uh, yes. the... Um, um, it, just to be negative, I don't like that Rusty and Audrey, and I don't like the fact that you know, they're both given two distinctive personalities. He's a poon hound, and she's just got a you know, eating disorder, and she fancies you know, Johnny Lawrence, and that's that's their in. Whereas they're more kind of a blank slate in the first film, and I think that works better than giving the kids these kind of like tropes. Yeah. But, so that, that's that's my other thing, and you know, it's a real shame it's not the same actors, but I know. They offered it to him. Michael Hall, and he said, "I, I know I can't. I'm really busy." And I, and then I mean, I guess when we when I said it last week, I think I did basically say it's almost like a different trilogy capper instead of Christmas Vacation. Mm -hmm. This it is almost a direct sequel to that well, one, isn't it? This really we're gonna have to. Yes, definitely. Yes, I think for both of us, and we said it when you first pitched it, like it's gonna be the third film, but not necessarily the last film. It's not gonna be the capper of them all because then the fourth you know Christmas can still happen and I need to say about Christmas um I personally I've never really clicked with it and I saw it last Christmas and I saw it a few Christmas ago and I have seen it and I saw it when I was at of age like I, I think I watched it with you Jimmy I think on video when we were like the right age and it was fresh and we didn't see it at the cinema we put it on video and we watched it but I never really really liked it and it's always there, and I'll never say no to Griswold unless we're going to talk about Vegas, uh, which I, which I guess we will have to. But in terms of Christmas, for some people, it's the only vacation film. For some people, yeah. it's their yeah. Muppet Christmas Carol, and it's like, oh, there are other vacation films. Oh yeah, apparently, but no, they're not going to be. And that's absolutely cool. Fair play, of course, that's brilliant. But for me, it just hasn't. I don't love it. It just doesn't click. What about you? I'm with you. I think the first, first half of that is pretty strong Christmas vacation. And whenever I rewatch it, I'm always like, I've been a bit unfair on this. And then for me, the ending of Christmas vacation just, it doesn't quite have the same um, punchy resolution, you know, Clark and his bonus and all that. And I just don't, and I should care because I wanted to do well, but I just, it just doesn't quite yeah. tie up for me well, either. Like each I just film, it, they all feel like after the, 
the sort of the gun climax of the first vacation. The second one, I guess, felt, oh, we need something to raise the stakes and have, it's like the police academies. So we've got to have like a kidnap. And then the third film is like basically the same as the first film and they go death style on it and they bring in the boss and hold him hostage and all that. And the squat team come in, squat team come in, squat. Um, and that's nice. So, so yes, you're right. Um, they all feel, or well, those three feel like they have to have some sort of bang ending. And it's like, you don't. Now about Vegas in that case. Now, in my experience, I knew it existed. I wasn't interested because I just I knew it was going to be bad. And then you and I, it was on or something. You and I, we were in London, I think, somewhere where you were living. And, and somehow we had access to it. And maybe it was even on a DVD. I don't know, but we, we started watching it knowing, and I think we had a beer, probably in the middle of the afternoon. And, and then we got about 20 minutes into it. And we're like, okay, yeah, let's cool time on this. So that's my only experience with it. What about I've you? I've never finished it, Sheppy. Isn't that bad? So, well, yeah. I mean, I can't talk. I mean, we literally did the same thing in that we yeah. did much more than about 20 minutes. But... Now, I want to ask you one more thing. So, okay, so we don't like that. And maybe, you know, fair enough. And I know they did a Cousin, a cousin Eddie um, spin-off as well. Oh, God, I don't know if I did know that. But maybe yeah, I must have known it, but yeah. It's from like maybe 2000 or, well, I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. But anyway, of course, it's crazy great. But in terms of those films, let me ask you about Ross and Audrey. Is it me? Or does the does the age change? Like it in the first does, film, yeah. is Rusty the older brother and Audrey is the younger sister in the in, in the first you, film? I don't know. You could almost say they're twins. I, I, I would say Audrey has more street smarts than Rusty in that one. Mm. Yes, um, but maybe but, that's just because she's, you know, a, cl- a clever girl. Mm. Uh, you know, not not necessarily Elisa Simpson, but you know, maybe you know, Rusty's Rusty, and he's because Anthony Michael Rusty. Assume, <laughs> he's, he's got he's to be cool. Like, but he's 12. You he's know. never bopped his baloney, Sheppy. We've got to assume he's the no. first. <laughs> no, he hasn't bopped his baloney, but he's getting there. Um, he's, he's been, you know, I think he's been given some sort of material to be getting on with. But nonetheless, yeah, it's tricky. Now, in the second film, you, I'm always led to believe that Rusty is definitely older that yeah. time. So whether or not Anthony Michael Hall and what's the face, I always want to say Dana Barrett. Um, when so that that's really are we? So we're not necessarily don't even know which one's meant to be older. I mm, tricky. Then you've got the second one, so it seems Rusty's older, and then the third one, Juliet Lewis is Audrey, and she's absolutely older, and they play mm-hmm. it, and it's Dingy Galicky, I think, as Rusty, and um, very young. So it's like. Yeah, very strange, very strange. And then yeah. they make a joke about it in Vegas in the first 20 minutes where they say, Rusty and Audrey, it seems like they're different children every day. And look at the camera, I'm pretty sure. Uh, so there you go, good stuff, good stuff. I, I don't know, man, if they don't, then they fucking ought to. Nonetheless, they might as well have. I think the music was like, boink, and there was like a pause. Anyway, <laughs> horrible. Nonetheless, that's really everything, I guess, um, unless there's anything about European or the original or anything. I'm really happy, Sheppy. I'm going to say I'm happy because if I attempt, I'll be unhappy. Do you know what I mean? I think okay. you summarized beautifully, man. I don't want it. Yeah, that, that was that's an amazing 
yeah, um, I think we've done justice in the opening there to our love of the movies, and I'm very, very happy. And I'm sure because I've actually gone for similar comedic beats in my pitch that I'll then get the chance to reference some of the original vacation moments and scenes that I love. So, yeah. Well, I'm very glad you chose this. And yes, I can't wait to hear your pitch. I'm going to say before we start, this is probably, I think, the first time um, this has ever happened where I, you, you set the pitch and then I contacted you um, during the week and I said, what? I need, I want to know what your idea is, bas- your basic idea, because I don't, don't want us to do the same thing. And, and you told me, and I'm like, that's great. And it wasn't what I was thinking. What I was thinking, I will get to, but it's kind of what I did, but it's kind of not what I did, but that's a tale for another time. Uh, in the meantime, you told me, I like it very much. Um, I can't wait to hear where we go with it. I did, Shepi. I said to you that I was going to go National Lampoon's Hawaiian vacation because I thought I spent a lot of time deliberating. So a few bits of context, right? In a minute, I'm going to go and get to my pitch. It has got, I'm going to say, two full pages of notes in a pre-title cred, and then Holiday Road kicks in, and then I basically have a page. <laughs> oh, fool. Well, that's amazing. So it's a classic uh, Jimmy pitch in terms of like okay. the, the early gags are all there. And I'm, I'm really am going to go into one about all sorts of different silly things. <laughs> and then and then I kind of, I've repurposed something, Sheppy, that honestly, like cards on the table occurred to me would be a really cool idea um, at, just for a straight movie and I, I'm going to tell you that now because it's sort of got context as to what I've done with the pitch. But like, um, and um, and I, but I, but I haven't had the energy or the inclination to do anything with it. And I probably wouldn't have another chance to do it in, in, um, it, it, you know, on on our pod here. So so anyway, that I wanted. To, I've always had in mind that'd be a really cool gangster flick in the sort of sexy beast type tone and style to basically have a, a um like a, a gangster flick set in the resort like in that well g and i and it's influenced a couple of moments in this we we didn't have a traditional uh honeymoon um we saved up a few years and then took ourselves off to the maldives as a treat and it was stunning and while we were staying at the maldives um there was a, a guy there that looked like this enormous egyptian gangster and he was at the bar and I thought to myself, I wouldn't want to like undercut him or piss him off because then, you know, the holiday could take a turn, you know what I mean? And then suddenly I'm in trouble and I'm just an ordinary Joe who's got involved with the mob, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I thought that would be a really cool location for something like that to happen one day. So I have that as a bit of a, I'll tell you in a moment, I have that as a bit of a backdrop. And it, oh, the way this opens is exactly how I'd like to open, like a serious nasty little gangster movie like do the people that's got that sort of british flavor to it um but um but i have to be honest i then got so carried away in all of the little silly chevy griswoldy you know other character moments that then i haven't had a chance to flesh you're gonna have to forgive me flesh key elements that have to happen to get there so maybe we can do a live workshop on a couple of things if we need to <laughs> where we get there Sheppy. but um, but the bottom line is um I'll, I'll get well get on with it here we go so national lampoon's hawaiian vacation 1987 we 
suggests 83 is probably about right for that original. Um, and then there, Ramis is back um, directing. We've got Chevy as Clark. We've got D'Angelo as uh, Ellen. We've got uh, Randy Quaid back as Cousin Eddie. I've, I've recast Anthony Michael Hall and Dana Barron. Uh, you know, he's, he's no longer that busy <laughs> as Rusty and Audrey. And we're just going to follow whatever age chronology that was for them. Um, and uh, I, I'm like, he's not even mentioned in there, so I'm going to strike him off. I assumed Zabka might come with them and come back. Uh, but I think that speaks to Audrey's weakness. And I want her to be a bit more strong and resilient, you know what I mean? Like that original vacation. So forget Zabka, he's just been uncast. Poor old Zabka. <laughs> um, so we've, then got, um, we've got Andy Garcia as a character called Raphael. We've got um, Miriam Flynn. I just looked her up, but cousin Catherine is back with Eddie. So just oh, to let you know, she's in this one too. And um, who gives a great comedic performance as well, by the way, in that original vacation. She's just wonderful. Yeah. She pops uh, up every now and again, that actress. And she's in Class Reunion as well. Um, so, and that's another John Hughes film from our past, which he wrote. Um, so, so there you are. Class Reunion, School Reunion, that one. I think. Yeah, Class yeah, Reunion. I know. Walter, yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah. um, that, I mean, what I love about that is like, it does always feel like these guys have got their troupe and there's people that aren't super famous unless you really geek out on the lampoon. But it's yeah. like, you, if you know, you know, and they're probably like the funniest thing. one in the group that makes everyone right. laugh between takes and that sort of character. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, the idea of National Lampoon, by the way, um, I never knew what it was watching the films. I knew it said National Lampoon's Vacation and so on, and then Loaded Weapon later on and stuff. But I never really knew what it was. And, you know, yes, it's just, it was like this magazine, like Mad Magazine, which became kind of like SNL before SNL and had this great big crop of amazing people who came out of it, including John Hughes um, and Chase. Uh, Hughes especially was a writer for it. And there's a good documentary about the guy who created National Lampoon. Um, which is played by Will Forte. So there you go, it all comes around. It's really good, it's on Netflix. Yeah. Um, Amazing. Joel, Joel McHale plays Caddy Shakir at Chase, which is astonishing. When you think of their relationship as actors, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so so that's, it's good. I like it. I like it. So there you go. That's a little... That's yeah, we should have said about that. That's a good shout, Sheppy. Funnily enough, I was listening to Ivan Reitman on the Mark Maron podcast yesterday on the drive home mm. and and he called out specifically the genius of Ramis's vacation and how mm. um, Ramis nailed it and also they just mentioned offhand a lampoon yearbook that is apparently like one of the all-time lampoon editions and I, it's just reminded me to try and google oh, it because I, I can imagine that would be hilarious like well they do a, like a fake yearbook as one of the national lampoons um <laughs> but um That's okay so the opening shot is like, uh, it, it's just a, a, a straight in, um, a cold open, um, but we're in a, a beautiful hotel villa suite as um, Andy Garcia as Raphael is attaching a silencer to his gun. Um, and Clark is tied to a chair in the room, like proper, you know, uh, his wow. slightly cut lip. His shirt is a bit torn and like, you know, he's looking a bit, you know, disheveled. Ellen is opposite him, also tied to a chair. She's oh gagged, God. her eyes are bulging. She's like sparky with her eyes, you know. Fucking <laughs> hell, uh, it's Mission Impossible 3. Yeah, it is Mission Impossible 3. It's that, that sort of tone. That's amazing. Fucking <laughs> um, hell. 
<laughs> I'm gonna, by the way, I'm gonna just have my phone here for a sec because there's a, uh, I want to make sure in a moment I remembered because I'm in the middle of the night. I thought, no, I have to do that in this scene. And I wrote it down really That's clearly. Um, but, um, but yeah, so. Um, yeah, <laughs> so Clark goes with it. The first line of the movie is, is Chevy, you know, and he's like sort of with it now. I think we can all be reasonable here, Mr. Raphael, you know, and um, and uh, and Andy Garcia and pure sinister Garcia sort of says, reasonable, Mr. Griswold. I think the time for reasonable has long passed us, don't you? And that, and so it's all hypertension, not really any comedy in that scene. And then, I mean, of course, you could sprinkle some silliness in later, but and then we just have a little title card that says one month ago. We go back, um, and uh, and we get kind of what what could be the open if you decided that was too extreme way to end a vacation to start a vacation movie. But it is an absolute, almost beat for beat of the first vacation where Chevy and Rusty are in a mobility scooter centre. They're buying a scooter for Ellen's auntie Estelle. I like the idea that Ellen might have just a rogues gallery of aunties everywhere. <laughs> yeah. like, and, um, and, and I'm, I'm going to have auntie Estelle played by Estelle Harris of Seinfeld for him, <laughs> uh, by the way. But so it's just auntie Estelle. And, um, and, and just under their breath as they're walk, doing the walk and talk, um, Chevy's like, you know, Rusty, we'll just order the scooter and we'll be on our way. We've got to get going, you know, and all this. So they're going through the place. And then, of course, Eugene Levy appears as the uh, scooter <laughs> salesman. And there's a slight recognition from Chevy, but he hasn't quite yet placed him. Like, you know, that kind of the... I know you from somewhere. I mean, despite the fact I put here that after the trauma of the, the family <laughs> trucks during vacation, he would definitely recognize him and probably sue him on the spot. But, <laughs> but Clark is sort of some kind of weird superhero, really, isn't he? Let's be honest. He's got it. So anyway, it doesn't matter. Eugene Levy's there. And uh, and he's he's still looks broadly the same as Eugene Levy in the original vacation. He's like, now, Mr. Griswold, if you're interested in mobility <laughs> scooters, you should really check out the Mobo 2000. And, uh, and, and basically, Chevy's like, no, 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 no. We're, we were in a bit of a rush. We really wouldn't want to. And then it cuts to the three of them uh, zooming around a warehouse of the Mobo 2000. <laughs> And, um, and Levy's is really loud as well, the scooter, and Levy's yeah. shouting over it. Like, you know, it's, it basically does 20 miles to the gallery, and then he's rattling off loads of other stats for them, you know, as they're going. And then, um, and then of course, they've been in this rush, so then we cut to Rusty and Chevy are enjoying a complimentary, like, lunch as well, like, you know, in the back office, yeah. where they should be there with grapes and stuff. And, <laughs> um, and Chevy says through a mouthful of sushi, you know, and it comes in all these colours, and Eugene's like, not just that, Mr. Griswold, but it also comes with an annual subscription to Mobo Monthly. And he holds up this <laughs> sort of ridiculous magazine with a Levy, Levy holds up a magazine. Then on the cover, there's an old man driving a scooter. And then there's a dead ringer for the Ferrari coat girl I've put sat next to him as well. On the nice. Brilliant. Um, and Levy's eyebrows go off his forehead, I've put as a. <laughs> And then we cut to a balcony of a stunning Hawaiian villa halfway up a mountain. Auntie Estelle is sunning herself um, on her little balcony. And there's a buzzer from the concierge downstairs saying she has a delivery. Um, then, then we ground level of the retirement apartment building, the elevator door pings. Auntie Estelle emerges in her mobility scooter. 
Um, I've put here, let's say, a young cameo, cameoing Morgan Freeman is behind the desk. I like the idea of Morgan Freeman being in a movie like this. And, uh, <laughs> and he's giving it kind of the driver Miss Daisy type energy of like, you have a new mobility scooter, Miss Ellen, like that. And, uh, and she's already really cranky. And she's like, I already have a mobility scooter. And he's like, well, now this is a Mobo 2000, apparently. And she just, uh, I can just, I, put, I can just imagine all twinkly-eyed Morgan helps Ellen into her new scooter. And it's a lovely little scene. And um, then she uh, she takes off in it and Morgan's looking out for her wistfully. And we find the camera holds on the back of her as she goes down the road, trying out the Mobo 2000. Oh, and is approaching the corner of um, of the road, and she's not stopping, and uh, and it's just a straight. I can just imagine this shot, just being straight and quite quiet, <laughs> just, yeah. and instead of taking the corner, she literally just goes through the barrier and over the mountain, <laughs> and, that's it. and then we just fade to black. We're still mm. in the pre-title grid, by the way. Thank you. Up from the black, Ellen is striding through the Griswold house, shouting, "Sparky, Sparky!" And um, and we just hear him say, "Down here, Ellen," you know. And uh, and Chevy is with Rusty and Audrey in the in the basement of the house. The shifting box is about. Um, and as we see him, he pulls something in his back, and um, and Audrey gives it, you know, "Dad, are you okay?" And he's like, "Ah, you know." And basically, Ellen has joined them, and she's like, "Sparky, you're too old to be lifting boxes like that." And um, and Rusty's like, "I've got it, Dad," you know. And he just helps her lift the box, and it comes to him really easily. And um and Chevy says, I'm not old, honey. I just forgot to bend my knees. I'm just being forgetful. And uh, Russ is like, Dad, it was the top shelf. And he goes, Shut up, Russ. Like, you know, and then um and anyway, so that's kind of one of the big threads here. Like Chevy's getting a bit old, he, and Rusty's becoming a man, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's kind of that dynamic a bit. And then um, and Ellen's like, What's this young lady? And it's like, Clark, you weren't gonna let Audrey go to the mall looking like that way. And of course, Audrey too is becoming a woman, and Ellen's got the same dynamic going on, you know, and uh, and Audrey's got quite a bit of makeup on, whatever. And um, and then he basically <clears throat> uh, Clark says, you know, what so what did you want, honey, anyway? And Ellen says, Now don't get mad, but I told Kathy that we were gonna stay on in Hawaii after Estelle's funeral, and they they might have booked the same hotel as us like this you know and uh and, and this is cousin eddie and kathy basically obviously and um and and clark's like what how it's a fortune that place that we booked is beautiful like that she goes well i think kathy was always on estelle's favorite and they might have come into a bit of the money you know and um and anyway that's kind of the setup for where we're gonna go obviously on vacation um, and uh, and Rusty asks Clark if you can borrow the keys to the car. This is what I came up with this morning. Um, Rusty asks Clark if you can borrow the keys to the car, and you know Clark reluctantly agrees. You know, but says to go below, go below fifty or whatever. You know. And then um, and then I see, and he's going to drop Audrey at the mall instead of Clark. You know, and um, and then I just see. Uh, this is what I came up with, just silly, because I thought I, I was going to cut to Jack being Jack be quick at that point, but I don't think it's got the beat. And so I came up with a beat overnight, Chappie, which is silly, oh, sweet. but it's just um, basically it's just uh, Clark and Ellen remaining downstairs in the basement and Clark's feeling his fragile ego is a wee bit bruised, you know, for not being able to pick up the box properly. And uh, but she's like, oh, Sparky, like, you know, you're going to be all right like that. And, um, and she she does the click of the light of the basement mm. and the light goes off and he clicks it back on. And he's still got a little lower lip, pro face like that. And then she <laughs> just goes, 
come on, Sparky, who's my Sparky? Or, you know, some kind of little lovey-dovey rubs his chest. Yeah. And, then, and then Chevy's, oh, you just see his eyes change to a little like mischievous glint, like he's going to get his end away. And then he just clicks the light himself and it cuts the black. And then we get the kick in of the music. And then, uh, oh, <laughs> I think you've got to have one little exclamation for Melon, like it goes back and like, Sparky! <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we get our, our credit sequence and then um you know at the direct and then it you know to your point Sheppy, i love that yeah absolutely we should have um certainly the traveling you know but but uh, but it ends here at the end with a shot of a car um but it's a, a like a people carrier limousine um going through hawaii to a luxury beach resort and that's where we get our directed by harold ravenous um, and maybe the resort is called the Wally Encore or something, just as a nice, you know, nod to the original, maybe. And then, but in this people carrier, we've got our four Griswolds and we've got Jack and, um, uh, oh, yeah, I put Jack that was, um, that's the only time he was mentioned, but poor old Zabka, there you go. I've actually oh, literally, I don't know why it matters, but I've deleted him from my word document. <laughs> so, so, it. Um, Sucks to be Jab. <laughs> so we've got the four Grizzies and we've got Cousin Eddie and Catherine and they're all in the limo in, in black suits and ties so they've come from the funeral we're not going to bother with that scene but um, and basically the um, Clark's up front with the driver and, uh, and the driver says that'll be $250 or in fact what would be even funnier is maybe there's two seats in the front that is um, Cousin Eddie and Catherine and they're just making out like, you know, in the front two seats, and then you've got the four Griswolds in the back, and the driver says that'll be $250. They don't stop making out, and Chevy has to, like, you know, get the money out of his wallet, you know, with it. That, by the <laughs> way, is one of my favourite little beats in the first one. How much we talking then, Eddie? And he pulls out his wallet. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so they're making out like teenagers. Um, anyway, they, they, they come into the complex as a, as a group of six, um, and... Uh, Clark and Eddie go to check in at the desk and Ellen and Catherine have a moment um, just with the luggage. And, um, and Ellen says to Catherine, you know, what, who's looking after the kids, Kathy? And she goes, oh, they'll be all right. They'll be safe. And I just thought there's, there's a real clear beat to just cut to them not being safe. And we're back on the Cousin Eddie farm, you know, and, <laughs> um, and maybe the bot, your baloney kid is hosting a local poker game or something, you know, be something stupid, you know. So... They've got a hotel suite on stilts um, in the beautiful water. And, and I should say, like, Ellen, um, Ellen and Clark, obviously, although they've had some hanky-panky in the basement, which is lovely, you know, really, Eddie and Kathy are still in the throes of, you know, they, they, they're making babies. They're treating this as a second honeymoon. You know, they're, 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 they're that counterpoint to the two of them, you know. Um, and... Um, They've got, they've got a lovely little villa. That's that's the accommodation they've got here. It's set up on the water, on beautiful water, on the stilts, you know, in Hawaii. Um, and um, and you know, Clark, of course, has got all the gear for a, a tropical holiday. And he's got a huge snorkel. As soon as they get in the place, he's down the steps to um, to get into the water with his snorkel. And we actually got a point of view as the snorkel goes on, and then immediately starts to steam up a bit. He wipes it, he puts his head under the water and immediately, like a jump in the movie, a shark just glides by and, uh, and he just kind of jumps back up the steps, really scared and everything like that. And um, Can it be a hammerhead? Well, it can't be because there's, there's a specific point, but I like that. I like where you're going. <laughs> I know. I mean, it, it was before Joe versus the volcano, but I just, I can't help it, I find hammerheads funny. 
Um, it's uh, well, this is the thing. This is actually based off a real life experience that I'll tell you about in a second, Sheppy, um, from that little Maldives trip I mentioned before. But anyway, so we cut from the shark jump and the silliness and the Ellen, oh my God. And then we're at a welcome meeting being hosted by Rob Lowe as Chaz. I don't oh. even know if I mentioned he was in the cast. So that's nice. So Rob Lowe is Chaz. He's an uber cheesy, like holiday guy who's there to kind of be their host, you know, for their Hawaiian vacation to book tours, all that stuff, you know, and um, including there's, there's the possibility of a day trip to a local dormant volcano island you know what I mean and all this sort of stuff and um Chev is in the full Hawaiian shirt of course he is um and we also get in this sort of you know around the reception area a little glimpse of Andy Garcia Raphael behind some dark glasses um now Clark does here probably one of the most Griswoldy things that I've done um uh, which is to approach Rob Lowe, Chaz, the holiday guy, and say, look, you might not want to close the resort just yet. But uh, because I basically did exactly the same thing as Chevy. I went, I saw the water, it was beautiful and clean, put my snorkel on, jumped down, and uh, went into the water, and holy shit, a massive shark just came straight past me. And um and and exactly this, I had the welcome meeting and I did the full look. You, I don't know if you want to call the Amity Police Department and close the resort. <laughs> yes, you know, let's just let's talk about it. But um, but essentially, um, you know, you should know the manager. And essentially, Rob Lowe gives Chevy exactly the same reply as I got, which is basically, oh, that's just Bruce, the local reef shark. You know, he's harmless. Mm -hmm. like, and all this, and everyone laughs at Chevy. So his masculinity just gets chipped away the whole the whole way through. But. Um, Anyway, here we go with a few little silly things that I think should happen in this environment a bit, Sheppy. So look, let's just say that night, the Griswolds are having a meal with Eddie and Catherine, who of course are, are late because they've been testing the bed springs out. Um, and, and one of the recurring things, and I sort of see it almost as a, a film of a couple of halves, you know, before we get to the gangster stuff, there's opportunity to do silly Hawaiian holiday stuff, really. And it's the gangster stuff that's not fully realized yet, Shappy. But um, but the I so absolutely appropriately to the to the latter two vacations, it will fall off in the last third on this. Yeah. But the um, but one of the things is, you know, they have a little hotel competition, which is like, you know, to get your Mr. Wally Encore and Mrs. Wally Encore. And so I see there's opportunity for the boys to be competing and Chevy to be, you know, consistently, you know, losing and that sort of stuff. And, and of course, Ellen and Audrey could be competing with Kathy and all that sort of thing. You know, there's just a, a heaps of opportunity with little hotel yeah. games there. I've called out one of the games here which is basically they could do like a, a chili eating competition. And um, and now you've given me a note for it, which is to say, like, um, basically, that uh, obviously Rob Lowe is the one officiating and being super cheesy and awesome, but also smarmy and terrible. And um, and they get to the uber chili or whatever. And I can just totally see Clark under peer pressure to be the one to try it first. And like your exact thing of the old kids, old kids with the tray. And like you have that shot of like the different faces. Like <laughs> Ellen's concern, cousin Eddie goaded him or whatever. And then Rob Lowe just sort of like confused. Maybe <laughs> the different notes would be amazing. And the, the chili's like here and that point of view of the chili going towards Clark's mouth or whatever. And, um, and then um and rusty's like really encouraging his dad believes in like with well, the do it dad do it like that 
and then um and you basically we don't see him eat it we just see it like there and then we just yeah. cut and it's just the toilet door in the bedroom <laughs> and rusty's knocking on it going dad dad are you okay <laughs> and then uh, and audrey's comes over like how long do you think he's going to be in there for because i want to use it to get ready or whatever like you know what i mean and then uh, and then you just hear from behind the store the door you just hear chevy's voice say Russ, could you slide one of those mobile monthlies under the door? <laughs> and, um, anyway, next day, big family day trip to a dormant volcanic island. And um, they've got all the gear. Um, they're the only family on the boat wearing life jackets. And these, by the way, um, are kind of Chevy specifically has bought them for the family for the holiday. They're sleek. They're not big paddy ones. They're sleek. So they could basically they almost look like just a waistcoat. Um, and, um, and, you know, and of course, Chevy's got a huge rucksack as well with loads of shit in it, you know, and all, all sort of hiking gear and that kind of thing. And, um, and Rusty, of course, is like the berets and European, like, why do we have to wear these? So I've just remembered the dog flying off the Eiffel Tower with the beret. Absolutely <laughs> stunning moment. And that the dog lives. Is the dog there. lives. Um, but anyway, um, and, and of course, Chevy's like, oh, you'll thank me if you go overboard, Rusty. Like that and all this. And, and then Rob Lowe approaches them and recognises the jacket because he's obviously some cool hiker dude, you know, and he's like, oh, I <laughs> They, 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 I was reading, you know, not Mobo month, maybe Life Jacket monthly, and there's a, a bit of a design flaw, though, isn't there? Like, and Joey's like, well, what? You know, and then essentially, I just thought it'd be quite funny if um, it, it, it just intermittently, the Life Jackets go off, like, and really go, boom, like an airbag, and then their faces oh, get really smooshed. Like, it was <laughs> And it just goes, it just gets triggered, like, and it keeps making Chevy jump out of his skin, like, whatever happens. And then, That's and brilliant. Because it's got the tech, it can let the air out as well again, and then it can just keep yeah. happening at stupid, comedic beat moments and all that sort of thing. Um, so that they, they get to the island, huge snake of people doing the tourist trail around the perimeter, and, of course, Chevy's, like, procured his own map, and he knows a different route and a better route to go. And, um, and, and of course, because uh, we're the Griswolds, and, uh, and Ellen's, of course, I don't know, Sparky, you know, I'm not sure, of course, they get lost on the other side of the island. Um, and they actually see the boat that they were in. It looks like they're setting off. It turns out, you know, if we go down, Rob Lowe's actually the nicest man in the world. He's looking yeah. for them around the island, but they think they're lost. They think they need to attract attention. Of course, Chevy finds a flare in his gear, all of the map, and they uh, they set off the the flare. But of course, it's it's got a big bang to it, you know, and the the, the light goes off, um, and uh, and then and then maybe it's uh, well, we just hear a huge rumble at that point. That's it. We just hear a huge rumble after it goes off, and then the boat lets off a couple of horns, so they we know that they've been identified and everything. Then we cut to the hotel lobby as they're kind of coming back in the troop and uh and on a tv screen behind the reception we just see you know um lava spewing out of this volcano and a report saying this this volcano had been dormant for you know however many years has erupted and destroyed several villages or whatever that really <laughs> awful because they always do something very dramatic don't they well after the first vacation like they not the statue of liberty or whatever or, like, yeah. or stonehenge for god's sake but um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, so then over dinner with Eddie um, that night. Um, oh, yeah, I thought about this last minute. I'd forgotten I put this in. So they're having another family dinner at the hotel. And, of course, um, Eddie and Catherine went the right route um, with all the group 
and they they you know you never guess what Clark uh, David Hasselhoff was on uh, was on the other tour at the same time. We saw Hasselhoff, you know, and they they really <laughs> chuffed and they got pickies with Hasselhoff and all that. <laughs> it's a real Matthew Perry with me in LA want to be, which I know we talked about on the song, you know. They so they don't get the, to meet the half, you know, and uh, <laughs> and and then Kathy's like, you know, and he said he might be able to get any apart on Baywatch or that, and then, and then he's like, I don't know about that, honey, you know, but but essentially it's a really fun course. It just adds to the Clark, um, you know. Uh, misery um, and uh, Audrey and Russ I just thought it'd be good and this is a bit of a subplot that isn't fully follow, follow through properly but Audrey and Russ take themselves off to the on resort disco bar club you know to kind of just check out what's really happening what the scene is um, they link in with a young man having cast it whoever's the star of the day you know and he's kind of the cool guy of the local resort maybe and Audrey has a bit of a crush and maybe and, um, and then you know he's like in the you want to see a real bar and they go off and have a nice little adventure in town yeah. and stuff I think <laughs> they I'd like to say they're actually completely out of the gangster side of the story, which is coming now, which is to say that they they don't even know their parents have been through the trauma. Right. And maybe when they, I haven't even written it, when they come back at the end from their town adventure, of course, like, you know, it's like, a, I don't know. It's just the, yeah, anyway, but, but whenever they, they keep going out to the town every night. So when Clark and Ellen get kidnapped and then they, they never really even, they maybe never even know happened. Um, spoiler alert, they survive Clark and Ellen from that <laughs> situation. <laughs> yeah, so um, so anyway, um, we have two shady uh, uh, characters in the corner um, uh, of the um, of the bar they go to and, and they're, they're actually part of Raphael's crew as well, we don't know that. Um, and then we've basically got, and this is where it starts to get very unwritten, Sheppy, and I'm sorry. So I'm just going to give you some brushstrokes of where this story should go. And then that's basically my pitch. But I see Chevy is going on the hunt for um, for Rusty and Audrey. I see him going to the, low, the, the disco there because Ellen's told him to go and see what the kids are up to. Right, and, um, and of course, he goes to the disco and he's giving it the pure dad dance. And like thinking he's cool, but not, yeah, and he's not being cool. Um, he hasn't seen them there, but then I, I see say and so that there is that little mystery they do need to resolve around where um, Audrey and Rusty been, but you know not not particularly interesting necessarily. Um, but then I I think there's got to be some misunderstanding where Chevy's walking back to his own room, and he accidentally doesn't kill, but expertly takes out one of Raphael's men. Right, so it's like right. a kind of a. Um, I don't know what stick, yeah, slapstick I, door in the wrong place, ducking, turning around. Amazing. Plank. But it also could be interpreted like this guy's a professional. Keep him close. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? And, and, and you know, Raphael even says in a scene that say, you know, we think we're being watched, you know, and all this sort of thing. And it must be this guy. And so essentially have a good, I want to say, 10 to 15 minutes of the movie where Raphael and his men are scared of Chevy as Griswold. It's like, because they think he's a professional. And like, maybe there's a, a volleyball scene, I thought, like, you know, a bit of a friendly competition where you've got maybe Clark and Eddie versus um, Raphael and Chaz, you know, so you've got Garcia and Chaz on one side and it's just, and there's tension around the court, you know, just stupidity. I haven't written it, but you know, I could just see it being quite yeah. fun. Um, anyway, on that basis, and again, very underwritten, Sheppy, I'm sorry, but, you know, the we get to the point where Raphael decides to take ownership of the situation and kidnaps uh, 
Clark and it all kidnaps Ellen and uh, Clark comes to the rescue obviously and, and it fails. I see Eddie has maybe come to the rescue and failing as well after the scene that I've already told you about, you know, <laughs> also failing and then all is lost. Everything is irretrievable and um, they're basically uh, Rob Lowe comes in as Chaz, who's been working undercover for the FBI, you know, and, and, and basically takes out, not kills, but, you know, saves the day and puts Raphael in his cuffs and everything. Um, I did wonder this morning, this was the second note I had, where maybe Rob Lowe thinks he's got the situation under control and then things slip again and Raphael gets a bit of an upper hand. They have to escape from the hotel room for a moment. And I thought it'd be quite fun if, like, Rusty in a thread from the beginning maybe he gets to drive that mobo 2000 at the front at the beginning just to test it out you know and and of course he's becoming a man so he gets to be he does know that his dad's been kidnapped and he gets to be the one that drives them across the resort in a golf buggy chase or something you know or something and then you know there's a nice moment in the end um and i just figured you know i essentially the good guys win out of course sheppy and then i thought it might be quite nice i think hawaii is quite a famous spot for well actually before we even get there i wondered whether bruce this relatively harmless <laughs> reef shark could then come back in, in, a, in the final act somehow and yeah bite off garcia's hand exactly romancing the stone. pure romancing the stone on garcia <laughs> and like he's about to pull the trigger and fucking bruce the reef shark pops up takes off his arm at the elbow and the rest of the film with maybe the occasional booby shot but isn't that hardcore but there's suddenly there's like this really shockingly graphic arm bitey off his scene that would be amazing <laughs> and then i've just got i think clark and ellen just renew their vows on the island do you know what oh, I mean? that's, that's a nice moment and maybe and then chaz is officiating of course as they kiss yeah amazing yeah um and rob Lowe officiating that i would say sheppy as well yeah, yeah absolutely i like absolutely. the twist that he's that he's not malicious. He's been really nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, dude, that's brill. That's great. Oh, yeah. No, full on. I, I just it. had to look. It's a couple of little silly Griswoldy moments. I'll be honest. I'll tell you, the gag made me laugh. I don't know if I've learned it the most, but just the idea of the Mobo Two Thousand Monthly coming back really <laughs> yeah. made me happy. Like yeah. I don't think I've actually quite got the line right and how to do it, but you get the gist of it and like how yeah. that would work and like it would just be so nice throwaway and like yeah, and and you don't know whether it means that Clark is going to bop his own baloney wise <laughs> or whether he's yeah. reading material. It's amazing. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, anyway. Oh, anyway. Nice. Uh, I love it. So that's Hawaiian vacation. That is Hawaiian vacation, Sheppy. I'm very bloody excited to know um, where you've gone. I love it. Well, that's fair. First of all, yes, that's great. Um, I enjoyed that very much. Um, the whole bringing back Cousin Eddie, but I think you used him really well because it becomes like the gang's all here if you're not careful, um, but it, it works. And again, because it's the third film and Cousin Eddie isn't in European, so it does make sense to bring him. Um, so yeah, yeah. No, fair play. I liked all of that, Jimmy. I liked it all very much. Oh, thanks, Shepa. Thanks, man. I'm, I'm very interested in well, whether he makes an appearance to mine. Well, I have to tell you this. Um, I was speaking with my brother about this, Stuart, and he uh, had this idea for a, a vacation, Martian vacation, uh, going off world, going into space, just for the 
Clark being on the rocket like the vibrating bed in the first one, trying to talk to her. <laughs> I'm like, you know, honey, this is one of those experiences you do, you take with you for the rest of your life, that sort of thing. Um, and so that's amazing. And him like accidentally causing genocide by stepping on a wire and bursting the brains of like oh, this, this Martian race or a race. Yeah, astonishing. So there's a lot of stuff, kind of like you know, space camp meets vacation. Uh, I, I would watch the shit out of that. So that was that was worth a little uh, a shout out, but that's great. Um, Definitely. It, yes, yes. Now, in terms of mine, um, I would say I just wanted to make sure there was nothing else I needed to mention about anything in the world, but not really. So I will just jump into it then. So, like you, um, you know what? I'm going to have to say one thing. Originally, for this. Um, I came up with an idea, I'm going to stick with it, but the basic idea was it was going to be like basically two locations. So at the halfway point, it, it changes to a different location. Uh, and then maybe the very like, you know, pure finale would be in a third location. Um, and that was kind of in my mind when I came up with the basic structure. So when I wrote it, at a certain point, it does change location, but I'll say now, it doesn't have to. and there's enough where it could easily stay in the same country. But I kept in the second half um, because why not? You know, the ideas were there and it was too delicious. Was like, why, why, why the fuck not? But you could easily not have it in the second location. Um, so that's nice. So the title for this film, Jimmy, and it's 1987, is Working Vacation. So we're going, we're going off on one. It's directed by Ramis. It's Chevy Chase, Beverly, Anthony Michael Hall, Dana Barron as Audrey, uh, with Rodney Dangerfield as Freddie and Sharon Stone as Betty, uh, 1987. Uh, sort of around Action Jackson, post uh, Police Academy 4, I'm going to say. So um, good stuff. Um, I wanted to mention about Anthony Michael and Dara Baron. In this version, in this universe, I maintain, I haven't recast them. They are, I, in my version of this, European vacation has happened, but with them, and the film is different. You know, it's not just exactly the same. They are, in a way, they have less character because they don't have one specific focus on them, but I like it like that. And by the way, I was going to, Rusty comes out worse in this for me, which is ironic because I really like Anthony Michael Hall as Rusty, but I, for whatever reason, well, and I'll tell you exactly why, because every time I would have given him something to do, I'm like, I just want to see Clark do it. So that's it. Um, so it's so a poor old here, but there you go. We're here for Chevy, 87, pure gold standard Chevy. So basic outline. I am going to jump around a little bit and do sort of weird spoilers, but Clark is up for a massive promotion at his work with food additives, no preservatives, He's been selected for a much coveted assignment within the company, heading up the division in charge of the next generation of food additives as developed by the newly merged Japanese parent company. Clark must go on a work trip to their head offices in Tokyo, meet the CEO, who of course is like a stern or business type, and must also travel Japan, inspecting the many factories and labs of the company while acting as quote unquote ambassador of America 
on his division, for his division, for the US company's behalf. Um, so, so that's the basic setup. It's Japan, which interestingly is also where my previous film pitch, Hudson Hawk, ended. So it's all one universe, clearly. <laughs> um, I was just thinking at one point, India, then going to India, you know, milking a yak, drinking it, having like the milk moustache and discovering it's like a male yak, that sort of shit. But it was always, I always went in this direction. It was only much later I thought about India, but I'm like, no, 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 I'm, I'm here now. So, so it's Japan, basically. Now the film opens with Clark leaving his work offices. Uh, we're outside the main entrance, you know, it's a nice looking business office in the city, I guess, Chicago, um, with lots of suit types undoing their ties and making a beeline for their cars, you know, in the parking lot outside the, the main entrance. Clark emerges in his pastel, you know, pastel blue suit, pastel blue suit and glasses, you know, massive glasses. He says goodbye to some colleagues. Well, I see it in kind of like a long shot. Um, you know, whilst he's exiting the large glass, important looking building, and he walks, um, you know, to his car, and he gets in and he drives to the, the security gate with the barrier, you know, leading out to the main street, and we meet the, the security guard, who's Gus, who's working in, in the little booth, and this, I was thinking, Gus, little cameo, maybe a John Candy type, but obviously not Candy, I was thinking maybe we bring back, you know, Boyle, Doyle Murray, you know, but as this character that could work, you know, Murray Senior. Um, I even thought Eugene Levy, not playing the same character, not even playing his brother, but just Eugene Levy because what the fuck. So maybe, but um, he's working the gate. Um, now, but he doesn't open the gate. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, something went down over the years and it, we never told what, but Clark and Gus are at loggerheads, <laughs> long-standing feud. And he's there, he doesn't open the gate. So Clark, you know, winds down the window and he's fake nice and has a brief convo with him. And, you know, but it's very strained. And he asks Gus, you know, hey, you think you can raise the barrier? But Gus says, you know, it's having problems. And Clark's like, the previous guy didn't seem to have any problems. Uh, you know, because the, you know, the car just left. And Gus says, yeah, well, that's the mystery of it all. And so Clark, you know, gets there, goes, yeah, you have to do it manually, Mr. Griswold. So Clark gets out of the car to open the gate manually to lift up a barrier, uh, because, you know, Gus is like, I word barred my back, but he's not even trying to sell the lie. He, you know, he, he doesn't give a fuck. Um, and he's not even showing fake motivation or to mask his dislike, really. So Clark just gives him that Clark look for a minute, just like, oh, all right, fine. So he gets out and he gets to the barrier. And just of course, as he gets to the barrier to lift it up, it goes up. So you know, he reacts and he gets back in the car. And then of course he goes down and he looks at Gus and Gus gives him a look like, I don't know, but yeah, fucking Gus is obviously doing it. And so a war commences and Clark's like half in out of the car, half out of the car and it goes up, it goes down, it goes half up, it wobbles around. There's like flinches and faints and double bluffs and. You know, Gus continues to watch like non-expressive from the booth, but everyone fucking knows he's doing it. And Clark ends up, you know, trying to play it cool and be like, oh, okay, okay. And then just like diving at the barrier, wrestling with the barrier, biting the barrier. And, you know, pure cherry shtick, his legs are going everywhere. And he gets it up there and, you know, and the barrier goes up and it fucking stays up and doing all of this, like, is it coming down? Is it coming down? And then he leaps back into the car and, he start, and it starts to move. And just then the barrier crashes down on like the hood 
snaps off like the front aerial and Clark like floors the car in low gear and the engine's going crazy and the wheels go crazy and the smoke's coming out and the car moves like excruciatingly slowly like going under the barrier arm which is like scraping along the roof like scraping off paint and shit with like this screech and it goes on for ages and then Clark gets out and makes eye contact with Gus kind of like I win, sort of look, even. You know? <laughs> and then he, he drives off, and the car's like clanging, and he and Clark drives home. And you know, so we cut and we put his Clark here. You know, it's basically the same shot from the first film. Clark drives his car up his little road to the same house, pulls into the driveway. Um, but you know, as he's driving, bits of paneling, roof paneling, are like flapping off the roof and shit, and something's clanging behind the car, just metallic something. And so, you know, God knows what happened there. So he pulls into the driveway and he gets out, of course, it's this beautiful nice day. And he goes into the house and he moves through the house and Clark, like we with Clark, catch up with the family as he meets them as he goes through the house. I mean, just quickly, <laughs> Shepard, before we meet the Griswolds again, like, holy shit, that was amazing. All the little beats you put in there, were wonderful and really very well considered very well considered very perfect um yes and it, it just has also prompted a, a point that i wanted to make earlier as well like i i get a cheap when i rewatch vacation movies i get a cheap thrill from what you're doing now which is this sort of the griswolds in bau right it, business as usual clark at work Clark, like you're just engaging with the world because I know we'll never get a Clark your own enthusiasm or whatever. Like, you know, I right. want, but I want to see him engaging with the world in the day to day, like just to even see him, yeah. you know, just at the weekend go oh, to God. the local cafe or whatever, like, just, yeah. and have a Clarky adventures. Yeah, absolutely. Clark your enthusiasm. I mean, yes, it's a small Griswold. Yes. Um, oh my God. Just that. It's like you say, it's like next generation. All my favorite bits from any episode are when they're just like hanging out great um that's i could just have the whole show is that really as long as it's not too much on geordie so yeah fair play um that's great You'd be, and i would like to watch that show as well that show and the one about mel smith's rotty london muppet motel in london yeah. those two shows are running concurrently both huge <laughs> what a world um and occasionally maybe in the pilot Clark is in it, of course. Chevy pops up, and then maybe there's like a crossover for season eight. But anyway, <laughs> okay, now hang on. Let's just let's just get this. So yes, thank you for that. That's nice. And yes, what you say about the business as usual, it's nice. And we get a we get a chunk of that here, and we also catch up. Um, so so he goes in, and the first person he meets in the lounge sitting room is Ellen. And she's at home and, um, you know, he, he enters the house and um, Ellen's got like her glasses on and her hair's up. And I don't know if we've ever been told if Ellen is a housewife or if she works or what, what she does. I don't think we, I don't think we know. Um, in this, we also don't know. But she's, she's wearing, you know, she's not hanging around. She's, she's wearing, you know, businessy sort of clothes, nice shirt, blouse or whatever. Um, but it might just be what she's wearing around the house. Nonetheless, she's doing the bills. And so she's going through all of this shit. Um, and she's, you know, she has this conversation and Clark comes in. Um, but, you know, she's wearing glasses. She's being serious. Uh, Clark is turned on. We learn 
through this whole conversation that, you know, bills are stacking up. Uh, we learn that Rusty, who in this version, of course, in the European vacation, in my version of you in vacation, it's those two, but I don't really, unlike you, you reference it a little bit. I don't really reference European very much. Maybe at one point in the background, you see like Clark's beret is hanging up or just on top of a dusty shelf or something. But basically it's not, but we do learn that Anthony Michael Hall's rusty. Um, you know, he's gone, he's, he is older by two years um, and he's going to um, college and he started college. So in this, I guess he's what? I mean, high school, I, think. I don't know. How old is he in the first film? Are we saying 20? Let's yeah. say for me, he was much younger, like the actor, but I'm going to say the character is 14. So in the second one, let's say he was 16. So in this one, he's 18. That's my logic. So I'm going to stick with that. At the very least, he's 17 in this. And he's already going to college and he's doing fine. But, you know, he's not setting the world on fire. But he's doing fine. He's okay. A bit directionless. But, you know, he's just he's a teenager. He's okay. Um, but bills are stacking up. Um, and also there is this uh, planned trip. Ellen is concerned about the planned trip. Now, I chose Hawaii and I chose Hawaii after I knew that you were doing Hawaii. But I thought to myself, if I didn't know you were doing Hawaii, I would choose Hawaii because of the Rusty connection. Like they're finally going to Hawaii. And the spoilers, they don't go to Hawaii. Um, <laughs> so... So there's a planned trip to go to Hawaii and Ellen's saying, you know, I don't know if we can really afford that. And also we discover, oh, and you are, I've got a bit of dialogue. Ellen is like, Sparky, I just don't think we can afford quite so lavish a trip this year. And Clark's like, some things are worth sacrificing, honey. And she's like, like food, Clark, you know, really flat, and she does. And Clark goes on to say that this vacation is the most important ever in the history of the family. The kids are growing up. They are moving out at some point. I mean, Rusty is not moving out. He's still sponging, frankly. But they're, they're getting up. Um, and, and, you know, he's going locally. But Audrey, we now learn, has been accepted at some fucking prestigious place. I'm going to just go ahead and say Harvard. Why not? Um, so nice. it's Harvard. She is younger. And now I don't want to lean too heavily into some sort of Lisa Simpson vibe. And again, I don't want her to be quote unquote specific or special. I'm going to say that she excels at something and it's not crazy, but she's been granted early at somewhere really nice like Harvard, not because she's like a maths whiz or something, but maybe she wrote some like amazing poem or something which got her like an English scholarship. I don't know, but something vaguely relatable that she could do, which was good. Maybe it's a music scholarship that she's really good. But then again, that's too Lisa Simpson. And I don't want her to be that brilliant because she is just, I like the fact that Russ and Audrey are basically normal kids. Yeah. And I don't want to do something good enough, got her in. Maybe, yeah, she is bright. Um, she is brighter than Rusty. Um, and Rusty isn't an idiot, but you know, she, she's doing very well. Um, so the babies are growing up and this vacation needs to be the one. Maybe uh, as a surprise, they're going to Hawaii and no one knows, Russ doesn't know yet. And Ellen's like, the upstairs bathroom's leaking again, Clark. How are we gonna afford the plumber? And Clark's like, sacrifice, sweetie. And Ellen's like, uh-huh. And Clark's like, we'll work something out. I'm gonna grab a beer. And she's uh, like, those aren't on the essentials, Clark. And, and Clark's like, I'm sure we can move some things around. Well, beer is <laughs> quite essential. 
kids don't need to go to the dentist anymore, right? They're, they're all growing up. So Clark um, then goes upstairs. He meets Audrey coming out of the bathroom. Audrey's like pure, you know, towel on the head and also towel wrapped around her, just come out of the shower. But Clark, you know, Audrey's now like, let's say 15, 16. She's growing up um, and Clark doesn't respect her personal space. He's treating her like a five-year-old right in her fucking face as she backs out of the bathroom with all the steam and she turns and she's like face to face and he's like, you know, close talking. Hey, sweetie. She's like, ah, dad, you ever heard of personal space? Yes, I have, sweetie. It's called paying on rent. And you know, he laughs at his own joking. He goes, and he's bursting with pride about Harvard. And he quizzes her. Uh, this is like a running joke. Of course, he's fucking over the moon about her Harvard thing. And he's always quizzing her now on random trivia. And it's a running gag throughout. Um, nice. So it's always random nice. shit, though, like baseball stats or, you know, non nonsense logic maths puzzles. You know, like, okay, Audrey, I got one for you. If a train leaves Albany at 7.45, and bearing in mind trains are notoriously late when leaving from the southern states in a train with eight carriages but one restaurant car, which is closed between noon and three, three first classes half full, eight second classes two thirds full, and one storage area with three hobos and a disgraced former semi-professional athlete, what time do you arrive in Cartina? And um, yeah, and Audrey's like, I take the car, Dad. And uh, <laughs> that's my little professor. And it kisses her forehead, and she fucks off. Um, so uh, also at some point, um, you know, just just because I was thinking about it. So in an, another one, at some point, he says to her, "Okay, so here's one to really bake you a noodle." Now, we all know Willie Mays was the longest short-form pitcher of these United States and a champion-level league batter. 1918 to 1927, but we do not know, for example, who was the shortest long-term batter who may have moonlighted as a pitcher and may have heard of Clue. It's not belly balance, but do share a teammate or two. And Audrey's like, I don't think Harvard's going to ask me about baseball, Dad. And he's like, well, who's your second choice? You can bet Yale or Sling at least a Babe Ruth your way. So all this sort of thing creeps out. Uh, Russ, after the bathroom encounter, he knocks and enters Russ's room. Maybe he's popping his baloney and he's like, Dad! Or you know, maybe not. Well, he goes into the room, man to man, good talk, Russ. But Russ, of course, is now feeling like pretty bad. He was always the oldest, still is the oldest, but now he's feeling left behind by Audrey and he's no longer the apple of anyone's eye and everyone's all, it's all about Audrey, Audrey, Audrey. And, you know, he's not whiny, he doesn't resent Audrey, he doesn't turn into a brat, but, you know, he's understandably, you know, he's like, oh. Um, and that's his journey in the film, let's say. Clark breaks down uh, his own, well, break, Clark breaks his own promise, tells Rusty about Hawaii to cheer him up, and it, it seems to cheer up Rusty. He's like, finally, Dad, thank you. So Clark is stoked uh, by all of this and the job opportunity, which we then discover, you know, maybe he tells Ellen or maybe we see the meeting with the boss, depending on how long we want to wait before we, we get out of there. And the, the apparent promotion and this amazing chance to do some good for the world via the best food additives, not preservatives, ever made. Uh, but disaster, before the champagne cork has landed, I don't know, that's a bit overly poetic. Clark learns that this trip is due to coincide with the planned family vacation. No one in the Griswold clan minds. In fact, they are secretly relieved 
a break from the stress and the misadventures of a holiday with her father is anticipated happily by the kids. And of course, Audrey is freaked out by this whole Harvard thing, through all this pressure, and she just wants to have no stress. And secretly, even Ellen is like, okay. Um, by the way, in the second half, at some vital moment in this film, uh, Clark here, it all comes out, and Clark realizes the whole clan is against him, quote unquote. And that they all secretly try to get out here with the plans, and you know, and that's his moment where he goes off on a massive strop and possible hot woman encounter. Uh, but we'll see about that. Uh, but again, not the same sort of scenario as Ferrari Lady. Um, the Russ has started college, he is doing well, um, but you know, the, the, the clock is ticking and and he does want this big family vacation. So he's like, right, we're not going to Hawaii, but everyone's going to come with. On, on this working vacation. And we're all gonna go to, to Japan. We're gonna do it on the company's dime to save as much money as we can. You know, they're gonna put us up anyway. So let's let's do this and we're gonna have this family vacation. We're gonna go across the world, the Griswolds to Japan. Um, so, but you know, but it'll just come out all, all, the, all the stuff at some point in that. Um, so yes, Clark won't let career and intercompany relations stand in the way of quality family time, especially since Russ and Audrey are really growing up, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so he decides to take the clan uh, all the way to Tokyo and then the various plants and so forth around. So they, they get to the airport, they fly with some minor agents in the plane. And again, there's a bit of another running gag starting now. Um, Clark is served by, you know, standard clean tray food uh, by possibly a wholesome and busty air stewardess. Uh, and of course, Clark is being the pure charmer with her and then is caught by a stone-faced Ellen sitting next to him. One of those camera moves and just, she's there just looking. He's like, see, you am a nice lady, honey, plastic fork, that sort of thing. Um, there's a running gag now where uh, during the film at certain points, Clark vomits on someone. And I thought, um, it would be funny if it was the same person somehow, but not a member of the family. So is it just like, could it be explained that somehow this person is always in the same really random locations just when Clark three or four times throughout the film vomits on someone? Could it just be left to wild comedy coincidence? Or could it be that it's someone who's tied to Clark, tied to the job or some such, maybe someone from the same company going with them? And if that's the case, it is established pretty much from the off that now, now I'm gonna say Rodney Dangerfield is in this film, but how much he's in this film is slightly fluid at this point. He could be the cousin Eddie, and he essentially is that role in terms of a hindrance and an annoyance in a pure Rodney Dangerfield sort of way. Um, but is he connected to the company and is he going along as well? Maybe. Um, or is it a wild coincidence? I don't know, but all I know is at various points in this film, I want Rodney Dangerfield and his hot wife, who is Sharon Stone, 1987, to, um, to pop up. Um, so, so they're there and they're established, let's say. <clears throat> um, and of course, Clark has many Ferrari Gold-esque moments with her. And of course, Rusty likes her and so forth, and Ellen, of course, does not. Um, so, so that's their sort of, you know, so whether or not he is there, he's, he's there for about a third of the runtime, let's say, at most. Uh, or it could just be a couple of Eric Idle sort of cameos. Um, so now on the plane, Clark's food tray. Now, Jimmy, you included a true story 
to inspire you there with the shark situation and your clerky response. I had this uh, experience that uh, when I was flying to Japan, in fact, uh, so Clark is given this tray of food. Uh, one of the compartments on the tray uh, seems to be noodles, uh, apparently, or guacamole. So after his flirting with the air stewardess, Clark enthusiastically and apparently, oh, oh, you know it, enthusiastically takes a massive mouthful uh, and you know, it's wasabi. So you can imagine Clark, you can imagine me, because it's exactly the same, Clark taking this massive by going kind of like, oh, look, I can use chopsticks. Look how much I can do. Oh, why is it the flying? Oh, always gives me such a healthy appetite. Massive mouthful, chewing really happily. And then the moment where you realize something's wrong and in the Chevy way, not wanting anyone else to know, still chewing, still trying to feign enthusiasm. And then the face goes red, the tears come, the nose goes, chewing, frothing at the mouth, using a napkin, scraping your tongue, pouring water, grabbing water from some old lady in the next aisle, ripping off the lid and just like, ah, or running, running like, that's one option. What I've actually got is, um, that's what happened to me, basically. So things go wrong. Uh, Clark gets redder and redder. He starts crying. He's coughing in that way. Uh, when you know that you need, you know, you, you're having a coughing fit, but you're trying to keep it in. And Ellen asks if he's okay, and he nods happily, but it's not very convincing. <laughs> and he's coughing, and he's still chewing, and he's still trying to give this vague semblance that he's enjoying himself, even though it's ludicrous. And he's coughing, and under his breath, and he's crying more. He's doing that spluttering coughing now, where you're desperately trying not to cough, and your mouth's full, but you're like, blah, 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 kind of like that. And, you know, he's exploding bits of splutter everywhere. Um, and so he gets out of his seat and he's trying to, like, get to the bathroom to get it out. Um, and he's staggering to the toilet. And all the while, he's turning more red and coughing and bumping into people down the aisle. And he's spraying people with, like, little bits. And he's coughing bits of chewed up guac. Well, not guac. Um, noodles and wasabi are, like, spraying out. And he's heaving all down the aisle. And he's starting to spasm. And he gets um, to, the, to the toilet and it's occupied. And he turns around and tries to get to the other toilet opposite and that's occupied but then it clicks to open and the door opens and it's Rodney Dangerfield's hot young wife Sharon Stone who we've established and maybe she's had like some flirtatious encounter with the airport baggage stuff with Clark and she's suddenly finds herself face to face with Clark who is like a fucking beetroot and she maybe says something like Mr Griswold and then Clark's face basically just explodes. He can't hold it anymore. And he just coughs like, Pah! and it all just sprays. Like as if, as if he's been shot in the back of the head and his brain, like what happens to Robin Williams in The Fisher King, the brain just splats in his face. It's like that with her, it's just bits of chewed up shit, like in her big eighties hair, there's like chunks and things and also just spray. And it's also like when the kid gets uh, sneezed on by the dinosaur in Jurassic Park, and you know she she has all that comes out of her mouth. Um, so so that's all right. So that's that's the the, the opening gambit, and and then he, he throws up on Shanson all the way through. If I, if I have my way, if I can somehow work out why they're all this couple are always there. And she's basically nice as the character, so she doesn't deserve it. She's married Rodney Dangerfield, who's a bit of a Del Griffiths, a little bit of a cousin. Anyway. A bit of a, well, a lot of a bit of danger. So they land and they're in, I guess, Tokyo and they're met at the airport by, you know, 
guy. And the, uh, Japan has a lot of possibilities, just stuff like Clark walking down a really busy Tokyo street. Clearly, of course, he's like head and shoulders and chest above everyone. So you have this you know, great shot of Clark being lost, trying to talk to locals and just a sea coming up to like yeah. mid-drill. Um, and all of that, you know, that writes itself. Um, he gets to the head office there. Now they're all taken to the head office. And at this point, or maybe when they first get to the hotel to check in, um, at this point, they discover that Clark hasn't told the family that he hasn't told the company that he's brought his family with them. So they, <laughs> there's this really nice hotel and they all can't believe their luck, but it's one room and it's one bed and it's the four Amazing. of them. And, and you know, so there's that scene. Um, uh, so I don't know if that is first, like they're at the airport and they get taken straight to the hotel, but more likely before the hotel scene, they get taken straight to the head office because it's Japan, it's business, it's business, business, business. He's landed straight to the airport. I hope you've done that presentation on the plane, that sort of thing. Um, so they get there, um, they get taken up to the head office and you know, maybe it's just Clark or maybe Ellen and the kids are like, what the fuck? And they have their own little adventure or whatever. Or maybe they just left to wander around the streets whilst Clark gets taken, sort of strong-armed, you know, I'll, I'll be right back, honey. You know, that Jerry Lee and he's like just taken like, you'll meet man now, you'll meet, you'll meet boss man now, that sort of thing. So he gets taken to the massive scar, you know, the glass skyscraper, and you know, proper Uber as a high ticket you can possibly imagine. Um, and he gets taken and he meets the big, big boss, the big CEO who I see as uh, the guy from Man with the Golden Gun, although that would be from Hong Kong, so that doesn't make sense. But nonetheless, um, he's he's there, and he is, of course, his kind of you know, big, big boss type, very stern. And of course, he's very strict, he's very fierce, and he does not like Clark at all. And of course, that scene, you can imagine big brushes of how Clark, how that meeting goes wrong. Um, now, so, um, we also now meet the character of Oshana, who is this regal, snooty, superior, sexy young business lady, who we are now told is Clark's liaison, who, who will be showing him to all of the sites and places that he's going to be quote unquote inspecting. Um, and he is told he will accompany him. Um, and she's, you know, very, very strict. Again, does not like fucking Clark. But then at Clark also learns. Clark, Clark, of course, assumes that she's his assistant or something, but he's, he learns quickly that she's his boss uh, and she will accompany him around the factories, but not as a tour guide, but uh, uh, actually to make sure that he's doing it well, um, that actually she has this coveted role and he's not really there to inspect the site so much as really just to learn from them to take the quote-unquote superior work methods and practices back to the quote-unquote slovenly states and Oshano is basically there just like being like you have to do this you have to do that and he's like gutted um and she will accompany as quote-unquote teacher and apparently wants to keep an eye on the dumb yank she starts out as kind of there for this sort of snooty aunt Edna type basically who they have to take with um Rusty has got over the Sharon Stone thing and absolutely falls for Oshana big time. He is infatuated, but sushi appears to not be the only cold fish on this menu. So oh she's God. obviously oh not God. interested. 
Now, about Oshana, she has this whole thing, and she called, she's a big thorn in Clark's side, but she's never, she, first of all, she's never the butt of any joke, so she never gets the act on. Um, and she ultimately, her only thing is she, she's obviously treating Clark badly and so on. But we, we later learn more about her, and we learn that she's as freaked as anyone else, about all these fucking responsibilities as a woman in this very male culture and in this business world uh, in general. And she, we also find out, is the president, the big CEO, Tanaka. She's his daughter, and she has a lot of pressure on her. And therefore, she has this connections with Audrey, and they, and they bond. Um, and Oshana has everything riding on this trip, which is why she is originally so harsh and cold with Clark at the beginning. Because it's like, this cannot fucking fail. My conniving brother wants me to fail because, you know, it shouldn't be a woman, blah, blah, blah. Um, now, there's another running joke that the family are given different cars of this tour of all the sites and factories that they set up around the countryside and the, the, you know, the city. And the first car is really nice and it's large and it speaks to them in Japanese and has things like automatic seat belts, which Clark, of course, has some issues with in funny moments. The kids are happy as the car comes with games for the back seat and everything. But we have a scene with loads of, you know, really loud electronic gaming 80s bon, 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 doo, boing, boing, doo, music and sound effects coming from the back seat, annoying and distracting, and eventually tipping Clark over the edge and infuriating him. So he slams on the brakes at one point, gets out of the car and rips them out of the seats uh, and pull, pulling the wires and the speakers and the seat cushion foam out. And effectively like, you know, the wire just keeps coming and goes all over the car. And he, he can't stop pulling it. It's just destroying the inside of his car. Um, and, and speakers and sparks then start coming out and stuff and, and effectively yeah, he destroys everything. So now the car is defective and so they're driving along. Sometimes it just starts speaking really harshly in Japanese. That's with them. And then sometimes, yeah, the seat belts start moving and the windows go and the window wipers and all sorts go with that. And then at one point the steering wheel locks in the middle of this heavy traffic and the sunroof opens at an opportune moments, sending Ellen's hair flying in a large map and other assorted bric-a-brac going everywhere. So that's, that's no good. Uh, and the horn goes at funny moments and stuff. Jeffy, uh, just so on that note, man, I love that. And I think that's perfect. And it's um i can see vis visibly like the, the family giving clark the evils when all that's happening yeah. and him like pushing through like yeah you know pretending it's all okay whatever's happening like, you're not getting <laughs> angry with it you know because obviously yeah. it's all... and then just a quick side note on the new vacation this this one with that helms we talked about they have a very high-tech car for the truckster. And wow. um, they don't do what you've done there. They do a there's the funniest gag happens in it in the car. Okay. Similar to this. But what's interesting is it's they they're not doing the subtlety of the, the incredible family dynamics that you're holding together right now with this. Like, you know, you've really thought about what the kids are thinking and where they are. And the, I love it. I love it. You've got the unit perfect where it's just a <laughs> gag in the new movie that moment and it's the peak of the movie so it's really interesting like you know how yes, that's a three-star decent gag make it a five by doing it the ramus way like this anyway man so i just wanted to say no, that oh that's lovely good on, yes well absolutely um 
they, they, they have a stop at this factory and everywhere they get is more and more rural and remote and, and so on as well, of course. It start off in the big city with a lot of gadgets and sparkly things and they end up here in paddy fields and shit, even though maybe that's totally wrong for Japan. Nonetheless, um, each place they get to, therefore, then they're given like a, a smaller, less impressive car. So you know, each time something happens to the car. So over the course of the film, they get like five or six cars and each car is more shitty and smaller. Um, so, you know, eventually it ends up, it's just really basic, really small. And the whole family is squeezed into this ludicrously small space with the luggage and, and so on. And Clark, you know, Clark tries to move the seat back and he can't. And his knees are up by his elbows and shit. Oh, but yeah, so, so that, that's nice. And we also, like I said, like this is what make watching European Vacation gave us. Um, that we have shots, different shots of, um, you know, different cars driving different landscapes of, of Japan and, you know, with, di with different cars in different states of disrespair, uh, disrepair, um, you know, down in insanely busy streets as well. Um, absolute carnage, Clark driving through somewhere like Tokyo. Um, and, you know, Clark's just going, you know, all the cool car horns, 10 lanes, nighttime, really loud, Clark's driving. And, you know, he's like, you just need to speak their language. I, and Audrey's like, are you sure, Dad? It took you 20 times to get Konnichiwa right. Well, Audrey, I'm not talking about talking. I'm driving at my driving. <laughs> you oh, see, wow. kids, yeah, yeah. You see, kids, when you drive in a foreign country, you take a look about you. You see how others are operating and you take note of the bearing, the speed, and most importantly, the tone on display. And you match that. Maybe you even beat it. Nothing impresses drivers like a foreign devil on the road with the moves to match. And, you know, he swerves immediately into like another crazy lane, instantly making this tiny taxi veer off into like a fruit market stall or something. <laughs> and Clark's like oblivious drives right out. And he drives right out into like this 10, 10 lane intersection. So then suddenly he's in the middle of this massive, massive thing. I see a huge point of view from high up with like a bird's POV and suddenly the car being swamped from like five directions by like a t approaching tidal wave of traffic like all going in the wrong direction to where the car's pointing, leaving them sort of facing sideways, surrounded by hundreds of cars like swarming around them, like a massive school of fish. And, uh, you know, Clark's like, at least the car's comfy. And it's a kind of a European vacation callback because they're, they're stuck there all night. And it's just the morning and they're going to sleep in the car and the traffic still just swarming around them. Um, we have a, um, another shot of like an empty rural road with like an ox by the side of the road and tall grass and snow-capped mountains and fishermen throwing nets and early morning mist with the truck still the equivalent of driving down. Um, they are put up in lots of company allocated hotels, um, each with an assortment uh, of issues. Some are too small, some are too large, only one room available, you know, in that, um, maybe more than once. Um, so it's very expensive, so they have to share this room on like the opening time. There's of course a fight over who takes the bed and who's taking the floor. And Clark is like up for taking the floor. He tries to be like, oh well, I guess you lose because I get you know, the floor is where the cool kids go, all that sort of thing. And he makes a big deal about it being fun, like camping. And he's trying to get Ellen to join him so that they can be naughty once the kids are asleep. And Ellen is having none of it. 
And so she and the kids end up taking the bed and Clark is like on the hard floor, like, you know, really thin blanket, really uncomfortable, <laughs> really horrible cushion. And he's still acting, of course, like, oh, this is the way to be. It's like obviously so horrible, like a draft under the door and all this shit. Um, so also, so they're driving around in increasingly more rural locations. Clark, of course, goes off map, delving deep into the local culture. He's staying at some, you know, eclectic locations. They meet like biz pervy businessmen and toothless farmers and demure ladies in hotel bars who Clark likes, but they all turn out to be prostitutes and stuffy sorts on receptions who don't speak English and other language moments of confusion, of course, you know, lots of miscommunication. Clark trying to speak Japanese, I mean, oh my God. Uh, also including like, you know, him, he, Clark takes everyone to a swanky restaurant and wants to be a big shot and get on Ashwana's good side. And he makes a big thing about blending in and being accepted as a quote-unquote white local and appreciating the culture. And Clark tries ordering off the menu, you know, despite it being only in Japanese. And there's like a stony-faced waiter and the embarrassed family and Clark really going for it and you know, just pointing to things and no idea, of course, in the Japanese letters and characters. And he ends up, you know, he orders some, you know, just blindly, and he ends up with some weird fucking food, including a black egg and like a massive octopus mm. in like a pot, which is still alive. And like, you know, he's talking to Wellen and it steals his glasses, that sort of shit. And there's like a, a blowfish, and Clark doesn't want to lose face. So he eats, you know, the poison puffer fish, and he pure does a bush and he voms on, like, well, let's say he's Sharon Stone, who's in this restaurant somewhere in, in, in Japan. And so he, he, he throws up on her. Um, and in his disorientated state, you know, he's all got food poisoning, he's pure white, he's hallucinating, he's staggering around, he's grabbing like water from other people's tables and throwing it in his face, drinking like the gravy or you know, the juice of someone's like dish or soup, just pours that into his own face and stuff, staggering pure from table to table. You can see it banging into things, knocking things over. Um, and the scene finally ends with Clark trying to leave with a semblance of dignity. Um, but, you know, he, he falls down onto the puff of fish and like it squirts out guts all over like some poor person on the next table. And then he gets up and tries to walk past all the staff and the fellow diners right at the end. But the spiky fish is like stuck to his bum. And he's walking out with this flat fish sticking out of his bum. Um, and he's just like covered in shit and puke. So that's unfortunate. Uh, also, there's a scene in a massive like high-tech shopping center and Clark has an adventure with a robot dog. And at first, you know, he's smitten and deeply impressed by this like amazing technology. Uh, but this, um, the dog seems to start doing willfully opposite to his instructions. It's barking when he doesn't want it to bark and it's not backflipping when he's ready. And then it backflips when he turns his back. And Clark gets into an argument with it, but it keeps besting him. And he finds, of course, he has now this new nemesis. Audrey, however, connects with the robot dog and buys it, much to Clark's annoyance, and it chooses to go with her. She's like, come on. And he's like, no, no, come to me. And it just goes, yip, 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 bang, 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 meow, 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 and just like follows her. And Clark's like, done thing. Uh, at one point, Clark comes back to the hotel room after some adventure or another, and it's night and it's dark. Uh, it's quite late. He, you know, he doesn't want to wake anyone. So he leaves the light off and, you know, Clark, he's looking for his wash bag in his suitcase. He's rooting around inside the suitcase. And we have a kind of a scene like the dog from the first vacation in the sleeping bag. 
and everything like the audience sees but clark doesn't then deep inside the suitcase there's like this kind of cylon kit warm, warm, sort of like red eyes menacing glowing out <clears> inside <throat> and clark sticks his arm right in up to the shoulder pure wood beast and he's like looking for his shit and then he yells and pulls a big close-up of his like horizontal face going from being happy to being like ah and he pulls out his arm and the robot dog is like firmly attached like gripping clark's whole hand in his like <laughs> metal mouth and clark's dancing and shaking around the room trying to get it off and um you know the dog isn't very big and uh, he's shaking his arm violently and then the door opens and ellen and the kids come back in and they weren't even in the room and they've all been having an adventure and ellen turns on the room lights in time to see clark like you know shake his arm in one final massive violent gesture and the arm flies off right past ellen and right past the kid's face like and out the open door off the balcony and into the car park below landing with a crash on their car on their windscreen this big spiderweb glass crack and that's what yeah that's another car that gets written off and the dog by the way is totally unharmed and yips and somersaults happily on, on the car um, and each backflip further cracks the windscreen and Audrey runs down and retrieves it and gives her lots of kisses and affection which it returns to her cutely lots of little mechanical yips and and stuff about digital growling for Clark, um, which Clark doesn't like that very much either. Um, so the robot dog continues to be a bane to Clark until it is accidentally backed over with the car. And uh, Audrey, mimicking Aunt Edna, screams at one point, Dog killer! Uh, at a swanky hotel, Clark has an adventure with a space, a space age toilet, uh, which of course squirts him in the eye with some super powerful jet as he's inspecting all the buttons and uh, has the superheated jet uh, and spray go out of control and you know burn his bum and balls or something and he accidentally or over enthusiastically turns the power up onto full and has like this compressed jet of super fast super powerful and super hot water you know goes right up his bum and he's like <laughs> selling that pretty well they also go to a bonsai hovel where bonsais have been maintained for 3,000 years and they meet an ancient like Miyagi type. I actually see the gremlins do, do sell, who doesn't sell uh, the Mogwai, but actually he's Chinese as well, so that doesn't work. Um, but the bonsai, he says, you know, to the family, bonsai reaches across time. The branches here start to grow dynasties past and with care, attention and love, these branches grow still strong eternal and uh, he says you know everyone can shape the future and connect with the past and he gives the little pruning clippers to rusty and audrey and they both you know like, take the pruners and snip very carefully this branch of one and the ancient tree and the aggie man kind of nods and grunts with approval when they do it and, you know, each cut shapes the future well they said ellen is nervous but the aggie says like wise reassuring things and like you have planted the seed of your children. You have cared and nurtured and watched them both grow strong. You can do this, then if you can do this, then no bonsai a problem for Ellen Griswold. And she, she's like, oh, and she takes the pruners and she makes a decisive snip and my Aggie man nods and his tree stronger for the care you give. And then Clark takes it and, you know, he says some wise words of his own. And he takes a delicate snip 
and the tree stays up and it, the tree looks strong and everyone, including Clark, look a bit relieved. And they thank the Aggie Man and they file out. And my Aggie Man, you know, is a beat and he smiles at the tree and the tree falls apart. Like it just, either like just all the branches fall off or it just cleanly, like along the main trunk stem, it just goes bonk and all that remains is like a nub. And the Aggie Man is just like, death has found you, old friend. And that's just the end of that. <laughs> Can I just say, so, like, yeah. that, that for me pulls a lovely thread from European vacation where they go to the wrong house and they're just totally none the wiser <laughs> of the chaos behind them. I love right. that. Yeah. yeah, they never know. Um, to fully immerse in the culture, Clark also insists on the family attending a sumo match. Of course, now Clark is goaded to partake. He comes out wearing, of course, the, the nappy and he does the, you know, the, the leg stomp thing. You could just give that to Chevy. And of course, you know, then he fights this massive sumo wrestler and he just imagined the impact and getting a lot of man blubber and man breast in his mouth and, you know, just being enveloped by this guy and pure Chevy, like gnashing and snapping and biting and thrashing and just gurning and very wide eyes. And, you know, in a brief, like, moment, he's, like, down and he says he manages to crawl over to the edge of the ring thing and says to Ellen, like, Chinese guy, yeah, the, the guy Chinese burned me, honey. And Ellen's like, I don't think you can call it that here, Sparky. And Russie's like, like, you can't say Turkish delight in Greece. And Clark's like, I don't know, now's the time for candy, Russ. And then he gets like pulled back into the ring you know, by his leg and he's like thrown around and stomped, tries to scramble out of the ring and he gets pulled back in, you know, dragging his fingers through the dirt or the sand, you know, and then like, you know, he gets thrown around and Dad, Rusty shouts out, Dad, remember the Turkish delight? And uh, Clark tries to give the sumo uh, wrestler like a burn, but he's flipped and thrown down onto his back. And the sumo guy says, this is... <laughs> He says, <laughs> he says, ben, <laughs> this, you have to cut this. You have to cut this because it's oh, going to come out clear. I'm keeping no, you it. Have to. No, because it makes me so happy, but it only makes me happy because of the way I hear it in my head. And I, so I just want to do that justice and it will lose all its power. I don't care. <laughs> all right. Uh, so the sumo says to Clark, this what called Japanese delight. And he sits in Clark's face. So it's <laughs> that, just that, but it really made me laugh. Oh my God, oh, just nice. that. So, so there you go. Um, so Clark continues just to get totally pummeled. And um, at the end of the fight, the sumo climbs up onto like a, a rock or something. They're indoors, but it's like this whole sort of like, look, but maybe it's just a table, but he gets up high um, and, and he performs, you know, a massive belly flop onto Clark. And, you know, Clark is on his back looking up and he screams. Now, you could really do this, like, slow motion. The guy jumps, Clark's like, moo. The whole family go, And you could really show the guy, the big sumo, every little sort of ripple in that body as he, like, goes off the ground in this huge belly flop. You could really, really milk it. And go super slow mo, or you could you know do various degrees, but he lands on Clark, and the family react, and Helen hides behind her hand, and uh, you know <laughs> Audrey is fucking just like can't believe it, 
and is kind of enjoying it and is kind of like she can't she's not like oh no dad she's like oh my god you know it's that sort of look she can't turn away um so so there you go so that that's that scene um and he's eventually hurled from the stage and he flies through the air and crashes like onto the fifth row of spectators or something when i said earlier that the film could be in two halves this is the it depends all of this could really be you know a lot of the film or this could be the first half um, i think we can basically safely say that the film could easily have them staying in japan and i'm going to kind of lean into that um and and go in that route even though i've written it going the other way but basically at this point i'm going to say in this version of this this everything that's happened now we're about 70 percent of the way through the film let's say um and at this point is when Clark has alienated the family once too often, and he's offended O'Shanna a million times and humiliated Ellen. And the truth about the family not really wanting to go on a holiday this year comes out and Clark loses it and goes off on one of his pure, you know, parades and is unduly harsh on everyone. And this leads Audrey uh, to go off and she goes off with O'Shanna. And this might be where you find out everything about O'Shanna totally mellows out or maybe we've been seeing little bits of her being quite cool actually tiny little flashes throughout but at this point she and audrey go off they massively bond audrey is really her moment she spills and like, yeah i don't even want to go to harvard and all this and everyone just naturally assumed i wanted to go when i got accepted and everyone's going nuts and all of this and her fears and the pressure she has and then of course O'Shanna says you have problems let me tell you my problems and then she's said, you know, the immense pressure she has, and they bond over that, and the villainous brother who wants her to fail. Um, and Audrey is like, being given this family, it's like God wants me to fail. And Oshana's like, everything is against us as women. Family is against, society is against. And um, so they really bond. And then it turns out Oshana has, be, has got some uh, weed with her, something called Japanese cooch. And we have a kind of a scene similar to the first one with Jane, what's the face from 30 Rock and Audrey. It's uh, they, they smoke a joint together and it's obviously very strong weed um, and, and they get they get baked in a frankly realistic way and not a joint breakfast club way. But they awake the rebellious spirits in each other and they take drastic action and they do a bunk and they take the company credit card and, and they and they go off into the countryside. And this is the point where it could be that they go to this other country. And frankly, I was thinking that they go to Australia and the second half of the film is them in Australia, wow. just basically wow. surfing, uh, not go, getting lost in the outback, because like you say, that's too similar and also in between us too. But surfing, sharks, everything's poisonous, koala, kill a koala on the face, uh, everything will kill <laughs> Family end up licking the same toad and have a massive trip. All this could happen. Uh, they end up going to New Zealand, do a bungee. Clark gets dumped in the water and he comes up and there's like a, a, a massive fish on his head. All that could happen. But I think, honestly, I think you'd agree, there's enough going on in Japan. I think the film can stay in Japan. So they don't go to Japan. I mean, they don't go to Australia with the you know, company plane, um, even though that would have Clark and Ellen and Rusty following with some real rust bucket plane following them to Australia, following the credit card bills and some ex-failed kamikaze pilot flying them. That could happen, but, and maybe that could happen anyway, but they take the company plane, but they go to like this really remote location in Japan, I think is better. 
um, because at this point enough has happened in Japan that we might as well stay in Japan. And so Audrey and Oshana take the company plane to this really remote location. Clark and everyone follow in this rust bucket with this failed kamikaze pilot, and that's a funny scene. Um, now Clark is in serious trouble because Oshana's done a bunk, Audrey's done a bunk. Everyone in the family doesn't like him at the moment, and he's also in danger of losing the work contract, destroying the relationship between the Japanese parent company and his own, not to mention he's lost the CEO's daughter. Um, so they, they, following the credit card trail, they find, they catch up with Audrey and Oshana in some like weird local, really fucking rural like bar. Um, Clark does this, by the way, by doing actually a pure Marty Bird, like he bluffs it to head office, like why is the plane taken to this location? Why is the company credit card used for all of these things and all of these weird locations? And Clark is pure bluffing it, saying to the Tokyo, the Tokyo market needs to open up and move away from big cities and the countryside, that's where it's at. And new businesses, new offices in these areas, this will expand the business and he's just thinking of his feet and so on, just totally making it go so long. And Okay, so, so that's all happening. They do catch up in this bar, and Audrey and Oshana are doing like some sexy drunken dance with like sake and this weed. Uh, but it's kind of like innocent, kind of happy, sexy, quote unquote, dancing. They're both just like girls having a nice time. They're just, you know, being fun. Uh, but th th it is in front of, uh, on the bar or on a table in front of a room of howling, gurning types. Uh, Ellen, of course, is unimpressed and is pure furious. Audrey, get her down, young lady, and all this. Uh, but at the end, of course, Ellen has a pole dance of her own. Super sexy. <laughs> uh, everyone goes nuts. Uh, Clark, at first, like, Ellen, but then he goes, gets into it, and he joins her on stage in front of the raging and exciting, excited patrons. Um, uh, I also had a, a scene when it was going to be in Australia for the second half. I'm just going to mention... Ellen is stung by a box jellyfish. Uh, Clark tries to wee on her, but you know, uh, he only knows <laughs> dribble after you know, performance anxiety because there's a crowd gathering. So he runs off to get a lifeguard. Um, but meanwhile, Ellen is left in agony. So a local has to wee on her. And then another one, and another one, and loads of different. Everyone's trying to be helpful, like an old man, like a hunky surfer, like a young bushwhacker girl. And they're all pissing on, on Ellen. And Clark runs back with the lifeguard to find like, this really long line of people queuing up like an airplane to piss on his wife. Um, so that, that maybe there's a version a of that that could happen. I don't know. Uh, maybe they have jellyfish in, in Japan. So Clark has an altercation with various people. He enters an arm wrestling tournament, maybe if that's not too similar to the sumo. Um, so basically, he rebonds with with Audrey and and Rusty and so on. And Rusty does have his moment. Maybe Russ actually is caught at, towards the end, having his end away, or at least caught in a passionate express uh, embrace with maybe even Sharon Stone. So she's not just there to be puked on, or maybe Oshana, but that's a bit much because she, she is, you know, she's like, you know, early 20s, probably best. But so maybe Sharon Stone, or maybe just some hot random person. Um, so Rusty has some sort of thing that gets his confidence back, basically. Um, Clark has made a peace with Audrey and Oshana, um, and they both, but they learn now, um, just when things seem to be wrapping up, that the CEO has come 
to this remote location just like a few hundred miles away and is setting up this big office and the slimy son is with him and so they're like they're stealing your idea Clark your pitch of like setting up all these offices and, and really you know expanding the company sleazy son is going to steal it and, and, and unless we get there so they get in the company plane and they bomb back you know to, to this place um, where the son is there and the, the father is there, the CEO and everything. And so, you know, after all of this, Clark is now enraged and they race to get there, but maybe they pick up the police are chasing them or maybe the bar owner from like the pole dancing, they didn't pay the tab. Maybe the, the kamikaze pilot, maybe they pick like the end of Blues Brothers, everyone starts fucking yeah. like chasing Clark and the family. Uh, Dangerfield maybe is there chasing them because Russ got off with Shanstone or someone peeped on her again. Um, Clark maybe cheated in his arm wrestling there. Lots and lots of things. Um, so they they storm this new big head office type, big office in this in this city um, or in this tiny town. They, maybe they fly back to Tokyo to do this. Uh, Clark rushes past the guards um, with a cool back to the start. You know, he drives and smashes the RV or whatever through the, the main gate. He and Oshana and the family and everyone else who's chasing them follow Clark. They race past the guards in the lobby, get to the lift, use like some um, dodgy ID to get the lift to take them up to the top. And they rush out into the corridor and he blows past a few uh, more freaked out security. And Clark, you know, bursts through you know, the secretary, is freaking out and he kicks open the double doors of the big main office just as the slimy son is like, you know, holding out this contract. And Clark, you know, he kicks open the doors and he grabs the contract and he rips it up in front of the son's face and throws it at his face. And he massively berates the CEO for giving the job to the rubbish son. And he says, this daughter of yours, she's the one and all this stuff. And he really goes for it. And you're all, you Japanese have a big mouth, but you're all ignore the real talent and so on and stuff like that. Like, like Oshana. And he rips in and insults and, you know, and he goes for it. And he insults Japan and insults Pufferfish. And after this classic Griswold rant, vent and spew, he stops and he's all out of breath and so on. He's red faced and sweaty. And then we learn that, uh, you know, the, the brother wasn't slimy. He wasn't trying to steal the idea. They, it, everyone knew it was Clark's idea. The contract was for Clark. And as a you American Western person had shown me that actually you do know business and it was an amazing idea and all of this. And, you know, so there's egg on Clark's face, but then there's this, you know, very, very awkward beat. And then the CEO, he, breaks and he laughs heartily and he growls with pleasure and he hugs Clark going, oh son, son, western passion, son. And you know, um, he's had enough of like, you know, uh, obsequious types and underlings and he runs Clark's fire and spirit, you know, like John Wayne, and gives him the promotion as well as making Oshana the second in command of the whole company and the head of the new division and so on. And so Clark is sent home promoted and respected and heroic. Um, and you know, we so and Clark and Ellen at the end, but maybe they're at the airport like waiting to leave, and they acknowledge that Audrey's life is her own, and Clark is pure, you know, like I'd be proud of you no matter what you do with yourself, honey. You know you're my hero. And Russ says, Does that include the pole dancing, Dad? Shut up, Russ. Uh, Audrey <laughs> says that maybe she she will go to Harvard, but she just you know, she doesn't want to be forced into it, maybe take a year off, maybe travel more, see some more of this world. You know, vacations aren't too bad. 
Um, and Clark is, wherever you go, just know, honey, your family will always be right there with you. And Audrey gives kind of this very half-hearted smile back. Um, they're on the plane. They're flying back first class. Audrey and Russ um, have wanted to drink all the way through the film. Another kind of running gag is Clark has always been stopping them. But now he says to the sexy air stewardess, you know, uh, let's have a round of sake. Really high quality. The best. Best, best, best you have here. This first class stuff. Let's get the very, very best. Aged sake. And um, very exclusive. I want the good stuff. The good stuff. So the whole family take a drink and, you know, it's really harsh and disgusting. Clark gives another kind of like really nice speech, but we did it as a family. We live as a family. This drink represents the family. That sort of shit and they drink and it's fucking revolting. <laughs> Spraying it everywhere. Clark does again a repeat of the coughing and trying, you know, to pass it off as pleasure. Like, what? No, it's good. It's fine. It's, it's, it's coming right back out. The, uh, the lady across the aisle gets hit with the spew. It's Sharon Stone. Uh, and then, you know, the, the pilot announcer says, you know, well, we're now approaching the United States. Welcome home, everyone. And Clark is there next to a traumatized Stone who he ignores. Um, with drooling Jack, uh, you know, like yak on his chin, and he turns to Ellen and the family, and he's like, "Gang, we're back!" And then they spew. Maybe if that's not too much, and then it's credits, and we were dancing, and at the end, and I've got um, not very good taglines. Uh, Clark Griswold is a man on a mission. Get that promotion. Keep his family. Have fun. None out of three ain't bad. Oh, like I said. It's not good. It's not good. And the other one, a job to do, a family to keep, a culture to destroy. And that's working vacation. Flipping heck, chefs. That was amazing. Amazingly well realized. Thank you, man. A pleasure. Love it. Love it. Love it. Very enjoyable. I was, I, I thought it was wonderful. And I think you've got the right side of caper and chaos and i love it when it's all about clark's job that's probably that's the bit of christmas i really like that you know it is mm. you know it, the stakes yeah. are high and real you know um which is great yeah, yeah. but on. man it's wonderful sheps it was really cool i could see it see it all well that's lovely jimbo thank you very much for suggesting this uh wonderful poignant for the 30th uh very happy so for the 31st, Sheppy, what, what will be the challenge, sir? Now, this one has been in the clip for quite a while, but it has been passed over time and time again. Um, but today, Jibbo, is the day. Um, again, I'm trying to veer away from my 80s uh, soft spot for a while. Uh, so I'm going to bring 60s, Jibbo, late 60s, the initial film. And it's a film that was on my mind previously but i didn't know until we recorded an episode of this very podcast that actually it's a film you quite like which was uh, it's a, an added bonus because as we know that it's never stopped me in the past there been any sort of consideration <laughs> my but in this case jimmy i want a sequel to well, let's say a hell of a cliffhanger not cliffhanger it's the italian job oh okay man interesting yes if only just to see what your first scene is, frankly. Yeah, that's uh, it, isn't it? <laughs> um, But yes, there you go. I want a sequel to, I'm going to say 1969's The Italian, certainly late 60s. Uh, bit of Kane. Uh, so the that's hill. exciting. <laughs> yes, a bit of Hill. 
absolutely a bit of Robert Powell so yes love it well Sheppy that's a great challenge that's madness I love it it's a proper caper um okay old Bean how do we sign this off as a vacation well yeah I mean what, what can you do I mean it's holiday road uh Jack be nimble Jack be quick uh, we're rocking in the bird seat uh swing low there's too much. There's too many things we haven't talked about. Individual. Let's just spend the next hour just quoting vacation. That and sounds so, like a happy time. Russ, <laughs> uh, Russ, your feet. We went dancing. Let's play.